Hi, and welcome to another session of our Corona Committee, 139th session. It's called Baseline. We have a guest here today, a former judge and prosecutor and lawyer, um, and uh, Mr. Tobias Ulrich, who is going to be our assessor here, and also he's going to be helping me asking questions. And we have great guests. I may perhaps introduce them already. We have a lawyer who has been representing a number of people who have been suffering from vaccination, and uh, he looks at what uh, are the possibilities of uh, having these charges come into effect, and when can you get compensation. Then we have Dr. David Jungblut, who is going to talk about how the prosecution's office is structured and to what extent they are bound uh, by instructions and who can uh, pronounce uh, themselves against this bounding by instructions. And then uh, another uh, subject matter um, that uh, we have um, uh, also been looking at before, Professor Ulrike Kemmerer, the next one on my list, human biologist and immunologist. She's going to give us an overview of uh, what we have gone through in the past three years, um, starting from the entrance of a Chinese lady to Germany who supposedly brought it all to Germany or infected, we don't know. And she's asking the question, what would have happened if everything had turned out to be correct? And in this context, I should like to mention something else that is quite interesting. We have somebody looking at the question of the false alarm, Stefan Kohn, and the uh, we just heard now uh, in the second round on Wednesday, they had in fact placed a ruling and um, <clears throat> the sentence is that uh, he uh, that uh, he was removed from being um, a state servant and he basically received the highest penalty, so to speak, the stiffest fine, um, but it has been then uh, corroborated in the second instance. And I was there myself uh, at um, the court session. I was there in person, and I will give you a bit of an observation of this. I'm uh, writing this up, uh, and uh, it will be put online later on today, and you can look at that. And it would be interesting to look at all of these prognoses from uh, the paper that was published back then, and what has come true out of that. And it doesn't look very good, if I might say so. And then as a fourth uh, member of our group here today is a former brand manager who was uh, in a leading position of a fashion label that is known worldwide and she uh, pronounced a criticism on shutting down schools which was the end of her 23 year old career in the company and what woke capitalism means and that in fact it poses a danger to the right of free expression and I'm interested in that because I'm close to the fashion industry myself and therefore it would be interesting for me also to listen to what she has to say. A few things are happening in terms of sentences and judgments that are being passed um, just now in a matter between myself and Rainer Füllmich. I will talk about that in a minute uh, but in that context I should like to tell you that um, we had an injunction from him, uh, a statement 
an affidavit that this amount of uh, 37,000 euros, because he was originally part of that company, which was um, then put into the building as a storage for this amount of money. Uh, it's 141 uh, days since that statement has been made, but the funds have yet not been transferred and he uh, uh, made an affidavit where he read uh, that the amount of 700,000 euros uh, uh, has not been um, defrauded uh, and I never used uh, that terminology but uh, he says that the amount is in fact available however uh, it is not going to be uh, given to the uh, committee of uh, the NGO of the NGO committee, but it will not be given to um, Mrs. Fisher, but uh, will be used uh, in the sense of my own desires as what is supposed to be done with that in the sense of the committee. And that, of course, is the problem that we're facing, that uh, at the moment we are not able to access this. And I also want to uh, mentioned the precious metals. We have a problem there too in terms of accessing it because Rainer Fimmich is in the States at the moment and only he and I together can open this security locker. Um, so uh, with an avatar in parallel, perhaps that might have been possible, but at the moment uh, that is a little bit difficult and therefore we cannot access these precious metals. These are the difficulties that we're facing at the moment before this background. We are now um, a foundation. Uh, we um, are non-profit and therefore please do not forget that and keep that in mind because currently we do need uh, the support that we've had in the past as well uh, because the funds that had been donated are not open to us at the moment and I hope that is going to change soon. Okay, I'll just say one last thing about the baseline. Well, on March 27, uh, 2020, I said, please do the baseline study because we need clean corona data because all of that seemed to be a little bit iffy. Uh, so many measures with so few deaths with lockdowns and all that. And that was basically our uh, perspective on it. So the question is, what happened since then? What was the baseline? What was the original activity and what are the parameters that it uh, was anchored on and what happened to it and now that march is coming closer um, and uh, we should have had that uh, you know we started at the end of 2019 we started ourselves here in germany in 2020 so the question is you know what happened to it? and we're going to take a look at that again so now I would like to welcome our first guest, Thomas Tobias Ulbricht. Uh, he's also a lawyer who has worked in um, our sense and is now fighting for those who have suffered from vaccination issues. Yes, welcome. I thank you for the invitation and I also welcome the audience. I am the managing director and partner of my uh, law firm in Düsseldorf, Rogert and Ulbrich, and I'll just give you a bit of background of where we come from to uh, 
let you know that what we are doing now is a result of what we have been doing historically. We started 2015 um, when Mr. Winterkorn talked to the press about the diesel scandal and uh, we took this along right from the start and we just experienced what everybody experienced if you fight major corporations in court and it took a couple of years and uh, reviews and appeals to get to the first success which we had in 2007 and uh, then a um, <clears throat> court in Hildesheim ruled on Volkswagen uh, to uh, say this as an immoral proceedings that they did and after that more and more courts followed suit. As a first line or law firm, we were also addressed by the Federal Association of Consumer Protection for the sample lawsuit and we joined up with a second law firm who works in the same area and is very leading as well. And uh, that was uh, ISS litigation, GmbH. And for the harm people, we uh, started the first declaratory judgment. And uh, we can't put it differently, but um, we were defamed and uh, it was clear, very clear that this can't come on. And it's a very, uh, a very blunt sword, really. And uh, everybody knows the result. At the end of the year, it was a comparison of 840 million, 250,000 harmed people were um, given a one-off payment. And that um, was the end of the diesel scandal and with the interesting inflation it doesn't make sense to return a used car a used car now has a higher value than it had before and now in 2019-20 we kind of seamlessly um, critically started to look at corona and I went through this and I found that uh, when it started with the quarantine measures and the lockdowns that uh, this is a work field for lawyers, we have to do that. And um, we looked at um, pain compensation uh, for people who were locked up, uh, especially people coming back from um, <clears throat> traveling or who were contacts of contacts or of contacts who had been locked down. And in this respect, I visited the corona. I was a guest here before at the committee. At, I think it was session 40. I presented what we did and I'd like to um, report about results, which was quite sobering. Um, all, we haven't got all the court rulings yet, but um, until now we have more or less lost all of them, some with the weird uh, reasoning with one exception, uh, which had which had a different kind of case behind it. 
um, the reasoning is so stupid because it tells us how um, the courts try to bend the law. For anybody who's interested, it starts with a redefinition, if I can call it that, of uh, restriction of freedom. Normally, this is defined if I cannot move in any direction and uh, I'm restricted. That is uh, what we have usually, uh, arrest, imprisonment. And this means I am only allowed not to go um, to a certain space. This is a public restriction. And in Hanover, uh, local court, they went and said, this is not really a restriction in freedom. It is rather a limitation. And this is what the other courts assumed and uh, the respective evaluation that uh, come from 139 criminal court, uh, criminal court code <clears throat> say this is a bagatelle which has to be accepted and uh, the court in Frankfurt Oder uh, added onto this, it's uh, tough, it's a general risk of life. If there is a pandemic, then there are actions and measures to be taken, and these are the general risk of life. I think that was quite a sporty approach, and um, um, Brandenburg also said um, in the findings, and the fines, they said that the separation regulations uh, after returning from a travel is not a separation in a general sense, but um, it says it's a declaration and um, this means why there should have been a special administration act to implement this. And this is why as this didn't exist, it can be called voluntary. If I had explained the same thing in the fee, um, criminal courts in local courts, they would have laughed at my face. So I've collected all these uh, strange um, reasonings and uh, I think they'll be happy to be part of this uh, circus as judges. That's the chapter that's more or less closed. We've got a few proceedings pendings, but that was the general section. And in parallel, it started with the vaccination campaigns, uh, 2020, 21, and I was never skeptical against this because I used to be getting my shots all the time. So I thought the people who work with this know what they're doing. Um, so I'm no anti-vaxxer at all. I'm vaccinated, my children are vaccinated, but I was suspicious about this particular vaccinations. Um, one thing is um, um, I am building a house at home and suddenly after the vaccinations, the excavator operator got missing. And I heard that he um, uh, dropped dead uh, shortly afterwards. And I had more cases of this in my surroundings and that triggered a research of what the vaccination is about, what patents play a role, where all this comes from. And <clears throat> I think Paul Schreier came up with a very executive summary 
um, talking about the preparation events, who was involved in it, what NGOs were involved in it, what patents played a role, and uh, and the Corona Investigative Committee started freshly. Dr. David Martin um, reported on the patents of the SARS-CoV virus and the development of these patents, in particular <clears throat> the ordering of the gain-of-function studies for Wuhan. And I drilled down in that research if these patents are available in US. They are available in Europe as well, and I found a number of them in the Purvis Institute. You can look them up if you research them, and they are set up in the same way. way. Um, it's the Zaskov virus, which is um, presented with the respective deviations in the gene code, and then it explains on how to build the PCR test, and then they explain how to build the vaccine that corresponds with it, and all of this in a single pattern, so it's all the same. Um, so very interesting stuff to read. Unfortunately, <clears throat> I'm not technically um, trained enough, otherwise I could have worked with the virus database in Wuhan, looking at the different sequences and the variants that um, we met all over the world later on. And I'm quite sure I would have found a patent for each of the variants. Um, so, it's very interesting on how easy it is to, to develop the respective PCR tests, finding the respective sequences, and uh, do they all knew what variant they had with what changes. And what I researched uh, really disgusted me, and I was so shocked that I was of the opinion that what the spike proteins do, what the lipid nanoparticles do, have no healing or effective character, but we must suspect that this is a biological weapon. And in that case, uh, for that, I filed a criminal court, a criminal court case in the Attorney General, in the Federal General Attorney, a prosecutor here in Germany, and I had an initial um, complaint detailing on it later, proving that BioNTech knew about the damages to be expected, and I got an answer. Um, Surprisingly, I thought that the general prosecutor would just uh, drop me a single line saying he doesn't have any suspicion. No, I got a four-page answer, and uh, the criminal complaint um, was uh, tw paragraph 20, Arms uh, Control Act and uh, crimes against humanity. And as far as genocide is concerned, there was two facts where they said this is no suspicion. The first thing is can't be genocide because everybody in the world uses this vaccine and everybody was subject to the virus. So, and if it was everyone, it can't be a group. Um, it's not logic, however, that was the answer that I got, and this answer is published uh, on the net. And uh, the second point is that the Attorney General 
cannot imagine that this is deliberate. Um, he can only imagine that this is an unintended side effect. The other aspect which I mentioned was the question whether it is a biologic weapon and there's paragraph one and an annex to it and this annex lists uh, biological weapons and in uh, number three there's a list of viruses and um, in uh, number 3.3 and 3.4 we can read that changes of the human being due to genetic effects from the outside um, are qualified as biological weapons and the answer was as the Zaskov virus is not in the list which is um, an, a special uh, particular list so that tells the legally trained person that this is a list of examples which is not comprehensive as this virus is not in the list, it can't, for that reason, not be a biological weapon and by no means with respect to the vaccine. And I, for whatever reason, it was leaked and I informed everybody that the criminal court, uh, the criminal complaint should be leaked as well um, together with the answer so that everybody knows what answer the um, Attorney General said, and the Prosecutor General said, and um, by now we have a number, far over a thousand peer-reviewed articles on this topic, on this topic, saying that the spike protein. Um, if we look at this from today's perspective, and if you look at what I wrote at the time, I would say I was on the right track. However, there were no other investigations in no other area either. We're going to have this again. There's a number of criminal courts, uh, criminal complaints that have been filed by me uh, to a number of prosecutors and a number of my clients. All of them have been turned down with a single line answer um, and there was no work done in broad and general. So I think David can talk more about that later on. Why that is the case, um, it doesn't look, uh, it may be just instructions from the Federal Minister of Justice, which are just handed down to the different uh, prosecutions. And this is what we see now as we see the actual deaths, uh, people who are actually subjected to a post-mortem showing uh, the vaccines being the cause of deaths, these uh, criminal suits are dropped as well. And I can only say that the relatives in these cases are ready to complain again this, against this and appeal in order to look at this in more detail. Winfried Spritz is uh, much better in the criminal code than I am. I come from the civil uh, code area, uh, but there are people who could do this. And that's the basis I work on. And then we had the corona damage 
and for the lawyers. The point is finding the facts, and um, this is what you do in the Corona Committee as well, is um, also a very broad field as far as civil complaints are concerned. If we look at the different bases for entitlements, gene technology, product liability, and so on, there apparently seems to be a very simple approach um, as far as the presentation is concerned, you just say there was a vaccination with uh, the date and the vaccine passport, and you report the damage. And then um, we have to have causality to see whether I have to provide this or not, and um, what are the different liability schemes that we have, what um, are the individual points points and how far can I get and or is the point that the burden of proof may be inverted if I'm out of the risk liability um, do I get um, accused for um, active action uh, this is what we start with in our research work we are a law firm who um, goes uh, for a common ground and uh, according to my research we have seen that uh, first of all the fundamental functioning as far as I understood the scientific writing on this is a lymph node system which is addressed here the interferon communication of the body and uh, that is affected and we looked at a number of different peer-reviewed articles which were later on confirmed in more detail by more peer-reviewed articles and this as this was known to the not known to the doctors we as lawyers of course try to leave our field and uh, did a press release to the mainstream media. I can show you this. We had this on our web page. Can you see our web page? Video contribution where he explained it and for that um, there's the explanation why that can be acquired by the vaccine. And if you look at the press release here, the article, there you go. Then we see and, and we show how we came to that conclusion. And these are various articles uh, which we then summarized in their logical sequence, because when we said if there is uh, a 
gene uh, medication which is uh, genetically proposed and the question is how was uh, the immune system before the vaccination and the situation of the uh, immune cells and what does it look like after vaccination and uh, EMA does not even ask for that kind of proof uh, nor is it being done at all and I think that's something that is completely not on because it's the first time that there is a genetic uh, medication being used that they do not look as to how it affects the immune cells, what is happening in the body after I have used that active agent. And unfortunately, only the Chinese, in fact, looked at it and looked at uh, what the effects of the spike protein uh, would be prior and after vaccination, prior to and after the vaccination. <laughs> this is the link that we have in our press portal. Um, comprehensive investigations revealed consistent pathophysiological alterations after vaccination with COVID-19 vaccines. That's the name of the article. Here we have an abstract. And then it is explained in great detail uh, what are the alterations in the body bit by bit? Um, I'm a very graphic person, so therefore I like to look at the graphic uh, explanations here, the graphs. You see the uh, segmentation here, it says before and after. And when it comes to the individual components, uh, genetic components, or the immune cells, it looks as if the immune system has been inverted. So whatever was uh, active in their DNA sequences uh, became inactive and the inactive became active. And if you read this article, you think, well, how, uh, that, that simply cannot be true. So then there are other uh, explanations that uh, really make you shudder. The telomere maintenance, the influence on that, because it's almost down to zero. And we have a physician present, um, and maybe he can explain what that uh, is, the, what, what the effect of that is. Well, it's a, it's a shock. Uh, and if you take that as an essence, uh, in the first effect, what you see here is the um, uh, communication of the infrafarone, which is the most significant one. And then in the article, it is being explained in great detail. So this is what the Chinese did in their research. And then in the RNA COVID-19 vaccine, there is the explanation how the interferon communication is being destroyed. And that is shown in both articles. And then we have the effects that uh, result from this. Uh, let me go back to the article. Uh, so we basically gave a summary of those two 
um, papers. So the immune system is being annihilated, basically, the testosterone system, uh, testosterone system is being um, um, suppressed, and then you have the uh, uh, creation of uh, large cells, so the spike basically drills through the cell and um, uh, moves over to the uh, next cell and then uh, then you have basically a lymphocyte shredder uh, in, and you have a type of uh, cell fusion and you see that here also in the blood imaging um, the function of the nk cells the natural killer cells is being um, suppressed and the the natural killer cells do not confirm that at half of them it works but the other half it doesn't so it's not a consistent uh, impediment of functionality that we could note and there is an effect for the T-Rex cells. So that is the theoretical base uh, on which we founded it. And uh, this is all done in this press release on um, the V8s. And <coughs> so what we saw theoretically here, we then see reflected in practical application. Uh, let me get out of the shared screen and I will now show you a lab result. <coughs> Here we go. This is from a lab. It's a lab report. Can you see it? Yes. Yes, yes, we can see it well. We see the second page now. Yeah, the second page is, in fact, is the interesting bit. The other stuff is specific um, to, to that particular person and what the doctors recommended, what should be done. But you basically see uh, TH1, TH2. The status of the citifies and for the IFN G1 PG, it is from 374 to 1560 and these down to 151 and should be between 28 to 141 and he had 1080 and here the ratio should be uh, 6.1 to 21 that would be 0.1 and in the IL-2, it should be 384 to 960. He was at uh, 226. And TH-17, uh, 49, 946 would be recommended, and he's at 30.3. So, and there are other um, findings here. And this is the TH-1, TH-2 uh cytokine profile and that's what we can measure here and as you see it doesn't matter if i measure it over a period of one or two weeks after vaccination or one year after the results are still the same so in other words uh, the disturbed interferon communication seems to be remaining with us 
Um, there is no betterment um, and anybody who comes here with this kind of uh, vaccination damage shows these findings. And there is another one that uh, comes on top of that. This is the, the uh, autoimmune antibodies. So the reaction to the to, to the spike, but at the same time, the antibody is there to reduce it. But uh, in a way, it, it reflects the spike uh, protein, but without the pH two. And these are the final papers that were published in this cardiological <coughs> journal that uh, you have free spikes in the blood reading uh, and that is not only to being exposed to the uh, cells but also to the uh, autoimmune antibodies. So this is basically uh, what we took along as our basic research and then on top of that uh, we have further damages to be documented. Let me leave that shared space. There we go. Can you still see the images? Well, you can share it anytime. We don't see anything yet, however. Oh, so you see me? Yes, yes, we can see you. So I will now show you. Let me see. Wait, wait a second. Difficult to see actually on the screen. Let me share the screen. Can you see it? Yeah. I shared the screen now. Yes, yes, we can see. Okay. Let me explain what we're doing. So we look at a, a great number of procedures and we thought, uh, you know, what kind of documentation do we need? What kind of information do we need to provide for our clients and we collect the information until it is complete and uh, then it should be possible to actually work on that file and from all of that data volume we can then create a dashboard and we have 1196 files with which we can work these are data sets uh, which are pretty well complete and uh, uploaded. And with that, you can see that we have those that are damaged up to the fourth vaccination. And we have all of the damages to their health to the same um, in the same pattern as the one that Ema uses. So we use the same um, terminology used by used by Ema. 
And then you have this uh, statistic that we have come up with. Uh, number one, uh, just uh, we have the very first one, the autoimmune uh, difficulty. Then there is problems with breathing, um, then arrhythmia, cardiac arrhythmia, and then flu. Um, then you have problems uh, with migraine, um, the proper blood circulation, migraine tremble, um, becoming problems with acute uh, heart disease, uh, COVID-19 menstrual problems, uh, paralyzation, uh, and so on. It goes down all the way. This is a long list. Uh, because other side effects are 523, but they individually are less than the ones that we have here. So who comes to us? Well, mostly it's only people who have been, uh, who, who, whose doctor has diagnosed it's a direct um, damage caused by vaccination. So most of them come from a doctor, 761 of those, but 360 did was, were not diagnosed officially with a side effect caused by vaccination. And then we check if there have been any significant prior ailments, not all of them answer. Most of them say no, some of them say yes. And then the question is, how do they report the damages uh, with 1,169? 351, in fact, uh, got in touch with the Paul Ehrlich Institute. Um, if we had 765 diagnoses from physicians, how come only 351 actually reported to the PEI? The explanation is simple. Uh, filling in these forms takes up a lot of time, and the doctors do it. They don't get paid for it, and therefore some doctors may just not want to do it. And of those 1,169, only 10, in fact, reported it at EMA, at IMAM. Uh, I don't know if the PEI then passes the information on to EMA. Uh, the statisticians may know this better than me, but these are the data that we have. Those that say that they have uh, a damage, and we ask them, you know, where exactly did you do your reporting? Well, that's basically what I couldn't tell you as uh, roughly as what we're looking at in terms of cases. I wanted to share that with you. And then. I wanted to look at the legal implications. Well, first, I'd like to start <coughs> How far advanced are these cases? Well, we, so, so far, in the collection of the records, we've got about 450. We had about 450 outside of court and about 100 court cases that we filed. Um, with the legal regulations, the medical legal people will think about uh, paragraph uh, uh, 84 as the basis for any claim. 
which I have somewhere here. This is it. Um, risk of uh, that the absolute liability is uh, ruled here. And uh, there were a couple of things that I was asked to look at. One is which is what is a medical drug? This is laid out in paragraph two. And if we look at this, you'll quickly get to the result that it's difficult in, unfortunately, I can't jump there. Well, paragraph two defines what is a medical drug, and um, I run into difficulties here already to see that this is actually a medical drug. It is not a means of healing, it is a, something of means of um, making people sick. It doesn't stop any disease in the human body, it creates them. It doesn't reduce any uh, disease. It um, harms the immunology and it's not worth for diagnosis. So if I look at this, all of this, I can't call it a medical drug. Um, I may think that I can call it a medical drug because it is approved, and then we have to look at the point of the time, of the vaccination, and in BioNTech and Moderna, we have a restricted market approval, and this um, is under the condition that it is later proven that there is no concern about the um, subjects. And this means that uh, restricted approval cannot be compared to the standard approval. However, we can leave this aside because we have another fact which applies to this law for the consumer. And if we look at that, you may wonder whether it is actually covered by this um, act here. And interestingly, the Federal Health Minister Spahn in uh, early 2020 asked for the uh, medic, uh, medical regulation, and uh, that says uh, that um, counteracts of what is covered in the medical act. For example, saying that uh, expired drugs can be vaccinated. There have be to be made no accruals um, in accordance to this act. Logistics is not done by the normal pharma um, logistics, but by the military. There is no obligation to produce a uh, leaflet to go with it. And uh, all of these are exceptions from the uh, law. And reducing the effect of the uh, medical act, 
Uh, normally, if you talk about drugs, uh, when you hear the advertisement, they say, ask your doctor or pharmacist. And um, this is something nobody heard in the context of the vaccines. On the contrary, until June, Mr. Lauterbach called it and said it was free of side effects. So that leads me to the conclusion that this wasn't given to the consumers in the context of this law. There can be a difficult, uh, different approach uh, given by other judges and prosecutors, and you could come to a different agreement because the regulation can be seen as void, but that will open a different criminal framework. So if this doesn't apply, we have to see what other absolute liability may apply if it's not the drugs. And then that led me to paragraph 32 of the Gene Technology Act. Let me see if I can open it here. <clears throat> here we have it. If, as a consequence of the characteristics of an organism, which is gene-checkly modified, uh, harms somebody in their body or health, the respective person has to be made liable for the damage. And this means the cost of healing and the loss of assets, which the harmed people have suffered temporarily or permanently. And this is a financial compensation, which can be demanded. And then we have um, facilitation of proof in paragraph 34. If the damage was caused by gene technically modified organization, organisms, it is assumed that it was uh, created by these organisms which work, which based on gene technical work. So one may wonder what these organisms are that we hear about here. And paragraph three says an organism is any biological unit which is able to transfer genetic material. And uh, in this case, I would say that a lipid nanoparticle, which is uh, has a modified RNA, falls into this category of the transfer. That's the intent of it. It is to be seen as an external system brought into the cell's body, a body cells to trigger the cells to create spike proteins. So I think it's possible to assume that this could be the case here. Um, in the report, we always uh, provide possibilities to find reasons to take decisions. The uh, <clears throat> a lawyer only presents the facts and um, the court may follow our offer or not. Depends 
on a different subset of questions. And then we've got the uh, other claims. I have little problems in establishing a claim according to um, paragraph 826, um, immoral uh, cause of damage. If this uh, happens, then uh, this damage is liable and uh, that is seen as violated here. For example, if you look at paragraph 5 AMG, uh, bringing this type of vaccine to the markets, and we've heard enough from the Corona Committee that the people who were present here quickly arrived at the result that this is quite clearly a case of Article 5. And in the consequence, that is also a case of 826. Unfortunately, in the uh, realm of the critical judges and prosecutors, I hope that they will get into this area as well in more depth, uh, checking on how far um, this is not only chapter one and two. I hope a third chapter is going to be opened here. Um, which is criminal standards 224, 223. Um, Mr. Jungblut can say more about this probably later. Uh, Wilfried uh, goes to 2L11, 212 um, as intent and uh, explain this quite deeply why quite clearly one can arrive at these results um, that the criminal standards are fulfilled here. And um, that is basically the area of the legal examination. And now uh, we look at the uh, insurances covering legal issues. Um, the insurers had the same uh, need as in the uh, diesel scandal. They just read our letterhead and rejected. Um, that is always the thing if uh, they suspect it's more than two cases. And then the letter writing started very intensively, lasting until today. And uh, you can really um, uh, declare all of this to the insurance before they are ready to take action. The current case is that they will cover this except DEVK. That's our black sheep, so to say, who rejects us and uh, wants to be taken to court. All the others, which were quite persistent as well, gave in but only with a typical yes, but. And then they uh, start talking about the value, about the lawyer's fees, and so on. So the standard um, procedures of uh, legal insurance who is not ready to stand in for the people damaged by the vaccinations and uh, make sure that uh, this is um, followed and examined legally. Many of them reduce the uh, fees because they say the punitive damage will not be given 
for example, V8, we take the analogy to the existing sentences as in HIV, and here it starts with um, 75,000, ends at uh, 250,000. Um, punitive damage, if we look at this, and then all the other uh, neurological damages, vascular damages for heart, usually there's not so much, depends on what there is. So on average, we have 50,000 euro plus for an acute heart uh, problem. And uh, so it is very individual, the uh, compensation that you can get. And uh, I can say that uh, um, with this is something that we can refer to the compensation paid in the past and um, people who are still working, the loss of earnings, the uh, cost of the domestic homes, traveling expenses to the doctors. Many people have spent tons of money for treatments, absorptions of immune systems, blood rinsing and washing. That's thousands of euros. Those with uh, neurological damages have had to rebuild their homes they had to get wheelchairs um, and recreate their house, um, lift stairs and so on, in order to be able to function and live in the houses that they lived in. In many cases, the restrictions are very, very strong. Many patients are not able to report to us. Uh, no, verbally, because they have uh, awareness problems, they can't speak clearly, they are physically not able because they have strong tremor or they have paralysis which do not enable them to operate a computer or uh, use their mobile phone. And uh, we, in two cases, we sent our staff to the homes of the people in order to um, report. <clears throat> and then again, in the hospitals, you often have the case that the contact is dropped and you don't get the information that you would need in order to um, stand in for the client. And this is important. And this is why we start to collect everything ahead of the action so that we've got everything uh, together before we start and don't have to collect uh, information under the way. And um, we um, get the permission of the doctors to speak. And um, many people don't have this because often a medical law uh, deviating from the actual reason of providing evidence, uh, the uh, courts start to uh, investigate. At least that is what Cologne does. It, um, and they demand this and uh, get the documentations from the doctors. And of course, in that case, it makes sense that the lawyer has seen the do documentation in order to avoid surprises in the documentation provided by the doctor. Um, whether this also applies for 32 Gene uh, Act, as it does here for the Cologne 
court. I doubt that, however, because I thought it was strange because in the uh, response to the complaint, there could have been a different way of response rather than saying, um, I um, find the facts myself as a court <clears throat> and uh, try to get what I think I'll need later on. So um, I work in the, in the general civil law, and instantly it's only Cologne who do it. All the other courts don't. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens here in the future, whether there is a, we're going to stay with the Medical Drug Act or whether they have to move on to the gene. Uh, Technology Act. So that is the legal framework that we are working in at the moment. Um, probably you can imagine that it takes a lot of work for every client because every a case is different, the documentation is different that you get, and also what the, the doctors write in their reports varies. And uh, luckily we have that web page, I don't know its name at the moment. Um, with all the peer-reviewed articles according to the damage. That is very helpful. Uh, you can look at things up there in addition and in support of the presentation of the facts that there is a causal uh, relation between strangely appearing um, cancers. We had an eye nerve cancer or sudden blindness, for example, or we had mothers who have uh, children all with the same um, vaccine batch, uh, vaccine at the same time, and at the same point in time, the babies were blind when they were born. And uh, so this is something that one has to look at. What effect does the vaccines have on the unborn child? Why is this topic not looked at? And why um, is this topic not brought forward? And then we have a very strange phenomena. We started end of uh, October, early November to take this to the courts. And then suddenly the events started to speed up in the European authorities, uh, change of the um, Gene Act in the respective EU commissions. And uh, all of a sudden, on 22nd of uh, December 2022, there was a resolution by the Commission um, regularly admitting the Cominati, um, approving the Cominati vaccine. Um, that was very interesting to see that during the proceedings, the clinical studies, which are still ongoing and still pending, officially pending, share the screen with you now and on the um, Gene Technology Act. Here we go. So we start off with the risk management plan from November 22. And 
This is basically what BioNTech has been given to be done and what they have in fact also carried out in terms of um, expert opinions to make sure that the materials used uh, are in fact not nauseous and I'm going to scroll down. Here we go. I'm looking for 121 and 126. Take a second. Here we go. There we are. So this is where it starts. So in fact, on the 10th of October, they have already then proposed on behalf of EMA to make a resolution of it, even though the entire process was still pending. And they write. Pfizer, on behalf of the MAH, that's BioNTech, basically, that's the license holder, uh, monitors the safety profile of its products. So, in other words, they themselves are able to decide uh, if their own product is safe or not. And uh, they say, you yourself um, evaluate if it's okay or not. So, and it says here, potential impact and product benefit, risk profiles in a timely manner, and so on. This is this is incredible. And then we have the lists that uh, we already know. They are attached. And for each study that is supposed to be performed, you have the data when uh, they are supposed to be submitted. Post-conditional approval, uh, active surveillance study, and so on for BioNTech coronavirus disease 2019, assessment of potential increased risk of adverse events, and so on, non-interventional ongoing. So what does it say? And uh, the milestone is the 30th of September, 24. That's when um, this study is to be submitted. And if you look at that, and then you see, if you compare it to what uh, you know, we had uh, um, restricted approval, you see all of the dates are open. There are no due dates set. And what does the EU Commission make from this? Uh, they have a resolution from the 10th of October 22 for Comunarty. And writes that because it is so beautiful and everything has been checked and tested and so on, that's this community is supposed to be approved as in a regular procedure. And it says that for community Tuzumaran, COVID 19 mRNA nucleoside modified, we therefore. Uh, provide approval and and, and and this approval is valid for five years that's absurd is there any additional reasoning 
other than what we're seeing here? No, no. Like I say, what would be a logical explanation is that uh, they didn't see the range of the gene technology act. If you look at that, look at the comments for the gene technology act. Here we go. Looks a bit small. Can you read it? No, it's all right. We can read yeah. it. It's okay. okay. Um, you can? Great. <coughs> so then you wonder, you know, here's section 37 that they say, you know, what is uh, the AMG, or in other words, the drug law, and what is the Gene uh, Technology Act? So it says that basically uh, we, we, we deal with it in good faith. And the drug law should kick in no matter to what extent it is being violated. So uh, if you do not have the uh, approval, then it says uh, liability is in accordance with uh, sections 84 and others uh, for uh, any of those assets that are supposed to be tested. And if you look at that, you have a number of points and expert opinions that are supposed to be submitted up until 24 that are part of this process. And so no matter if the regular approval has been given or not, I can only say uh, the importance is, of course, when do we have the moment that the damage kicks in because of uh, these vaccinations, and not only that afterwards they are uh, trying to cut off the gene technology act because these um, effects are much stronger than the ones that are covered by the drug law. So then the question is how to get at it um, in terms of compensation, but it's quite adventurous to see what the convention as uh, the uh, committee does here with the missing studies and simply assuming that they will all work out. Yeah, it's, it's shocking, it's shocking, absolutely, it's a scandal, because if they deal with it in this fashion, then you simply cannot believe anymore uh, that the approval process is legitimate, because they seem to be disregarding all the laws here, and BioNTech, uh, they can um, with that, any, any, any further expert opinions will not play any role because they already have the approval. A quick question uh, from my side. I'm not very familiar with the approval procedures, but independent of the details and um, this um, strange procedure, I'm a bit confused by the Commission um, being allowed to decide on their own behalf there. If you look at the theoretical model, you should expect that in this fundamental question which we're looking at here, <coughs> that the European Parliament would have a word to say in this or the Council, <coughs> because they are the democratically elected bodies who should take the lead here. 
actually the Commission is only the executive organ within the EU. This is why I stumble upon the um, strange procedures here that the Council and the Parliament are kind of left out of these decisions. Do you know why that's the case? I don't know about this. Uh, uh, I don't know how exactly the approval process works, and uh, uh, there's other experts who know about uh, uh, approval law. For me, it seems to be extremely odd. It looks like if, if somebody from outside uh, interferes and, and uh, they just want it to go the way they, they want, uh, that, that, that they're happy with. So uh, they have not proven in any way that uh, it is not noxious, but at the same time, uh, they say no problem at all. We can easily provide that this is harmless. The context you put it in is your assumption? Well, I assume that um, they didn't even see the scope of uh, the Genetic Act and therefore uh, in a formal manner, if you look at the comments and so on, this seems to be the interface. And with you proceedings, you you put them on that horse or you drew their attention to it? Yeah, exactly. That's where uh, the attention stems from. And this is the basis, of course, for for any claim. And, and, and they also didn't have this genetic law included in there either. But basically, this is what it's about. May I, may I ask a question? First of all, hello to everyone. I was very interested in listening to all of this. Concerning the last question, why the European Commission and not the Parliament or the Council play a role here, they only do it if that is in formulating the guidelines or the regulations. <clears throat> but they don't look at the individual administrative acts. That's what the Commission is supposed to do. And this is why they're definitely not involved here. But I have a different question. If I hear that the people uh, get lawyers now, that they follow up on this and <coughs> maybe get a positive um, ruling by a single court and get pick up on that, that sounds very tedious. But on the other side, I hear that the health insurances who are very interested in this if i have a car accident and somebody else caused it and it leads to costs usually the health insurance has a great interest in not paying these costs but um, make somebody else liable so the Insurances who have to pay for all the treatments now, everything out of this, <clears throat> they don't care at all to get the money back. Why do, do, do they not support and what can we do about it? There is a different reason for that. I think it is the contractual basis um, uh, of, uh, between BioNTech and Pfizer and the Federal Republic of Germany. Uh, we'll try to open that document for you. There is the contract. Sorry, that's the wrong one. Here we go.
According to this, it's not only the people who are harmed in their health. Everybody who pays the contribution is involved because they have to Absolutely. pay it all together. Absolutely. I'm going to show the contract. Here, here it is. This is the agreement. Can you read it? Yeah. So this is the framework agreement that uh, was made prior to the approval. On the one hand, you have the uh, European Commission acting on behalf on the name of the member states, and uh, it's all they're all listed there. Among them, of course, Germany, and then they are represented by Mr. Stella Kiriakis, who. Uh, then negotiated the contract for the European Commission. And on the other hand, you have Pfizer and BioNTech. And interesting parts in that contract that are very, uh, very special. When you look at the individual points here, 15.6 uh, or 1.6, supply of the vaccine. <coughs> Uh, 1.67 is the waiver. So that's interesting. So Germany recognizes and acknowledges, you could write Germany because it says the Commission, that any kind of uh, important steps will be undertaken by Biontech to detect significant risks and so on. Uh, and they also recognize that at the time that there is no approval yet and the vaccine is in phase three of the critical trials. And that's interesting because after it had been signed, they were starting to advertise for it. Uh, in, in Germany, uh, they already started their advertising in December. Uh, they recognize that there are risks, that they are still in phase three of the clinical trials. All of that hasn't been concluded yet. And at the same time, they are already running advertising in 2021 for the vaccination. And then 1.12, there you have the limitations of liability for indemnification. Here we have it, 1.12. The Commission, on behalf of the participating member states, declares the use of vaccines produced under the APA will happen under epidemic conditions requiring such use and that the administration of vaccines will therefore be conducted under the sole responsibility of the participating member states. Hence, each participating member state shall indemnify and hold harmless the contractor, their affiliates, sub-agents, subcontractors, licensors, and sub-licensees, and officers, directors, employees, and other agents and representatives of each the indemnified persons from and against any and all liabilities incurred. Settlements as per Article 1.12. 
1.6. And then the next um, part, they say that they will have to bear the burden of legal costs, fees and other expenses relating to harm, damages and losses to be defined in Article 1.12. In other words, um, the risk is always with the taxpayer. That's the federal um, state of Germany. <clears throat> but now I am in um, health insurer of a company and the federal government concluded a contract and I have to pay for it. <clears throat> Can I hold the federal government liability? liable? No, because in the long run it is not Germany because, I mean, that's the misunderstanding that you get. Um, also with the Spahn uh, declaration and uh, from the outside towards the damaged person it is always biontech they are the manufacturer and thus are the proprietor of the approval but inside um, Biontech and Germany, it is in fact Germany that will have to pay for it. And so state liability is always the subsidiary liability um, as opposed to uh, the others that you have to uh, hold yourself against. And the question there is, is the state um, actually working here almost um, as, as, as a private actor, like a company? Because uh, here they are the only ones in that field. And, you know, is the state not actually working on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry? It's a really, really odd constellation. And if you read on, it goes all the way down uh, that um, the compliance with good manufacturing practice and so on is being excluded. So there are some really, really big shockers in here. And um, in official requests, you know, this is all blackened out because I understand there may be other contracts uh, from countries where the wording is similar or identical uh, and therefore i think this is exactly what has been agreed on and then you have follow-up contracts that are based on this uh, which then cover the the new orders there are similar contracts also in pandemics uh, in where narcolepsics um, cases occurred, and I know that some Irish lawyers, for example, um, took Glaxo to court and the government at the same time, trying to get money from them. Is that comparable here? Do you know about that? How about the narcoleptics? cases, it's over a thousand cases with uh, court cases where we had the same secret contracts with a <clears throat> restriction of liability. Are there any parallels? Well, I took a look at it from a practical point of view. You have, I mean, the legal grounds for asking for compensation uh, I, I as, as, as a lawyer i have major major difficulties to get that um, through because it's the reality that you're dealing with and um, 
That is sometimes what makes it impossible to obtain these payments for damages. And, you know, inside the corona measures, um, you know, you are dealing them with courts that are following um, the regulations and uh, these are then headed by people, judges who also at the same time work in the uh, um, uh, administration of the Ministry of Law. And therefore, in all of Germany, uh, there is no uh, interest that a chamber in charge of um, seeing that the state is liable will get his fingers dirty. And so, and I hope these are not people who read this uh, for the very first time. A brief comment on the question Vodagas, as far as the health insurances are concerned. If you look at the civil court, I would say this is a contract on behalf of third parties. If uh, <coughs> BioNTech, Pfizer, and the federal government uh, <coughs> makes a contract uh, that keeps the uh, health insurances liable, I would say that um, as least as far as the private insurances are concerned, um, they are outside of this. This may be an aspect, although, as you said, we are thinking about things that uh, are very down in details here, and uh, they're just taking the sledgehammer to solve all this and uh, looking at the competencies of the different courts that the uh, presidents or the vice presidents of the respective courts um, are in the respective chambers that's my experience um, when i had mass proceedings for example in mines <coughs> that was for the whole of rheinland-pfalz at the time for the Coroma cases, and by coincidence, I would say that uh, the chair was the vice president of the administrative uh, court, and I wasn't very aware that, um, where are they involved? <coughs> Well, at the regional court in Hanover, they had a special section just for this particular, for these particular cases, and the vice president of the regional court um, also uh, complained at the chamber of uh, lawyers, uh, and um, because I wanted to, uh, you know, when I presented, I said it didn't, it was not something that was done by chance, but it was done intentionally. And I think it was, uh, had been prepared long before which uh, step uh, works with what other step to have a maximum pressure exerted on the population. And those people um, who had, uh, you know, prepared this. I mean, they were completely, you know, they made him be extremely surprised. And then, uh, and then they, they uh, said, Who's, uh, who was the court judge in that court? Yeah, so he was vice president of the court, but uh, then uh, he, he, you know, the, the, this, what he wrote there, he didn't do it as in, in his function well, as president how. of the court. I wonder how independent he was. Uh, yeah, because he was at the same time in the Ministry of Justice, so uh, in the administration sorry. of the Justice Ministry. It sounds quite biased. However, um, 
I think it's interesting to see what the proceedings behind the scenes are. That's uh, part of what I'm going to talk about in a minute, because I don't think it is individual instructions that we're going to look at, um, that people are sitting there and know what they are supposed to do. Or, and if there's special chambers, um, that is a very strange procedure. Um, there is um, <clears throat> normally a proceeding set up in the beginning of a year or however on what uh, Ron, yeah, Ron, I prepared all that and they said this doesn't matter, doesn't matter. So that and um, like stark memories really if we look back in history. Well, however, maybe another comment uh, to Wolfgang. Thank you for that uh, comment on the competency of the parliament and the council I am aware of that, that uh, they have the legal competency. Maybe the question wasn't put right. I just wanted to point out that in this basic question, there's only one body that is involved on behalf of the European Union, and that applies for the whole of Europe or the European Union as a total, and uh, that is a disastrous situation for democracy. I wouldn't expect a different decision from Parliament, however, but looking at it from an abstract point of view, it's very strange, and one could look at the framework conditions that we have here, that the Commission has this power, which is nothing new again, but it's made very clear in this case. Well, <clears throat> there are more organizations and agencies that are not being controlled by the parliament or by the law. Look at the European Patent Office. Nothing to do with the European Union. It's, it's, it's some kind of uh, formation that has its own rules and regulations. There are so many of uh, those organizations that create their own standards and norms. I mean, look at the WTO or other global organizations that uh, have, in fact, executive powers without any parliament controlling them. So it's only the politicians, the governments that can do something. But there is no transparency there. Nobody can understand that. I would have one comment to add, and many people may wonder why does the law firm doesn't attack the doctors who vaccinated. Quite clearly, there are um, entitlements. I don't know any doctor who um, informed their patients properly. Starts with the information about the restrictor approval, and it ends in many, many other questions that are all listed in paragraph 136. That's a given. Um, we'll do that in individual cases if they are especially outstanding. Apart from that, we need the doctors as a whole in order to treat and report the side effects and hopefully find uh, doctors with remorse who will uh, treat um, what they did and do not just uh, scare off if we uh, write to them and ask for their support. <clears throat> so we are not attacking the doctors. We need them for their support. And in many cases, I assume that they think they are protected by the government, which wasn't the case. And uh, a lot of disinformation was given and a lack of readiness to provide the information, to get the information which was broadly available. 
amongst others in your committee. And then the question is, why do the uh, medical people function so differently than the legal people do? Um, the normal uh, courts say, if you are not updated and know what's going on, uh, it's your tough luck. And uh, um, this seems to be not corresponding to reality because with the doctors, the doctors <laughs> the, see the patients and the, the, the doctors simply say, no, there is no uh, side effect. It's probably psychological. I give you some psychopharmaca and you can go home. That's it, probably. And uh, <clears throat> they all feel the harm people are so left alone. And that applies to the large number of the doctors. And so this is why the chambers, the medical chambers, who uh, fight the doctors who do see a correlation between the uh, vaccinations and the adverse effects. That's the point to kick in here. It's all ruled top down politically that the doctors apparently uh, do think it's good to uh, not do what you do, which is proper diagnosis and amnesis and uh, not scare away from uh, looking at things that they may have been thinking off topic. Well, I have an idea that comes to my mind. How about the uh, doctors that actually extend a certificate that's people exempt from being vaccinated. Uh, when they say, no, I will not want to vaccinate a patient because I don't have all the studies, uh, we don't know about um, side effects and they're not safe and therefore I give them a certification of being exempt. Have, has that been tried? I mean, that would be conscientious. Uh, so I, 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 I wouldn't prescribe anything of which I'm not sure. That's a good approach. I think they are particularly the ones who have uh, not vaccinated are the great heroes um, who know uh, who could imagine the potential damage, because if you have read, they had read and understood the function of the uh, vaccines, you can't, especially not vaccine young people and children. And if I just took uh, uh, saline solution and injected that, great respect. <clears throat> Yeah, you're right. Um, they were in that situation that um, they had to do something that basically was against the law in order to um, protect their patients. And on the other hand, that the physicians look for that solution and also the stuff about the masks and all of these things of which, you know, they should have known that, they, that it didn't make any sense and that it made more damage than it helped. If uh, they had, um, you know, really stood fast, they wouldn't have done it. Well, with the Doshi study, it's uh, black and white um, proof that there is more damage than use. So it's not the computer-based calculation. It's a fact now. And then we have the last point, which is paragraph 60 EFG, um, which uh, usually the doctors say, they say, well, uh, report the damage. And then uh, according to part two, number 11, <clears throat> that's the severe damage that uh, 
last for more than six months. Chronic. Yes, which are chronical, and um, they are then given in a report in parallel with the degree of disability <clears throat> and uh, is uh, comparable to the accidents insurances. And so this is also attacked, and there are so lots of um, objections that are not, shouldn't have been issued, could be not knowing, the people are not educated well enough. <clears throat> And uh, to a very large extent, um, uh, doctors have said this is different and difficult to understand for the lawyers who want to file cases. It is very bad because also the non-legal um, certificate has <clears throat> a uh, relevance legally. So I have to get this. Uh, report in order to take that then to the civil courts with uh, hopefully positive and this is why it's critical for the cases where you can only get this and uh, apply for it and on the other side the lawyers are liability because if the civil court is wrong <clears throat> goes wrong then uh, the client said I could have get, got a pension and so on you didn't tell me to do this and so on and so forth so this is something that you have to note that there is this possibility we have people apply uh, but I uh, have to say um, that um, these cases are carried on at a later point in time and those who have got a positive response up to 60% do get it of course they uh, are lucky because um, a state court can't get around this, for example. Therefore, it makes sense in these reports to actually lay in a counterclaim. And that was actually the first step that you do before you go to the social courts, because um, if you are, uh, in fact, permanently damaged at your effective percent, then uh, you can uh, contradict it and uh, veto that, and then you say you want more, you, 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 you want another percentage rate. <coughs> yeah, it's easier said than done for us, because every second or third person is not personally able to do this due to the sickness that they have, the degree of harm and uh, we have to support here and uh, carry this forward. That's this segment. Well, one of the biggest clubs that we have in Germany is the social association, and they, in fact, support their members uh, providing counseling. I'm, I'm a member of that uh, social endowment, and uh, I, I think it's horrible that they don't really explain that in detail. And my appeal would be, please, take care of the um, vaccination damage because that's your role. But Tobias, I think one does see that the courts and all the other places, <coughs> there are now uh, things that are simply moving forward, that they are not recognized, although it's uh, emerging in the mainstream that these side effects do exist and it's not a psychological damage. Yeah, but they still have a complete blockage. They block it completely. 
they try everything to uh, make sure that the pharmaceutical industry is not being taken to court. And uh, they may exert pressure on that. If you know, if we have uh, any losses, you personally will be held responsible. And that's why nobody wants to take you to court. Is there a tendency or observation in Cambrics we had this, that they didn't want to get a verdict and just uh, had individual agreements? Yeah, that's the tactics, of course. Uh, like Volkswagen, you know, they wanted to go to force settlements, uh, you know, and if there were, you know, any sentences looming, they said, yeah, let's go for a court settlement, um, because, uh, of course, that's what they always want to do. And they will probably proceed in a similar fashion. And so these things that have been decided, that will be taken off the table. I mean, that's the typical tactics, uh, you know, with confidentiality clauses to make sure that this doesn't come out into the open. Well, the vivid spirit is not just keeping damage from the pharma industry, but also from the uh, construct of the Federal Republic and the Union, the European Union. It's a kind of cooperative behavior that we do see. And I think that's the major reason uh, in terms of motivation. One thing I'd like to add is that we can't uh, leave people out of the responsibility because in our society, they have a very exposed and privileged position. Of course, they may deserve it. But I think a lot of um, responsibility goes along this. And uh, if things get uh, severe, we shouldn't let them uh, go away. But um, I don't think you should look at the doctors only independently of the fact that we will need them still, that if these procedures are successful, it may be successful and the doctor would be ruined. If we look at the dimensions, then uh, they um, uh, have uh, private banks bankruptcy and that would be enough with the damages. I guess uh, the doctors, they all have insurance, but eventually the insurance may kick them out Haven't too. they excluded it? The insurances haven't excluded. I'm not so sure if they have excluded, but the doctors will find out. Probably if they are going to. See. It'd be interesting to see. Well, from what I know is that there is the constellation that as of the moment that you have positive knowledge that you must assume they had, and that is at the point when when all of these uh, vaccination damages were up on the table and nobody mentioned it uh, when it came to providing that information. So you know, we had the report uh, from the 20th of uh, uh, 20 to the 20 six pages in small print with all the damages. Uh, I mean, that means positive knowledge, and that means it's intentional. Uh, and if you do not provide that information, no matter how seldom it occurred, uh, according to 630E, if you vaccinate a uh, healthy person, you must explain about the risks. They didn't do it, and uh, that's what they're accused of. And they made a lot of money on it. One doctor got up to half a million euros simply by the jabs and the tests per year. Yeah, it's crazy, completely crazy. Yeah, we should uh, uh, then approach these people uh, also, you know, to have a kind of deterrence. Well, 
I think we should just tell them that they must report this uh, law to uh, that they're obliged to report. It says here that if you have the suspicion that there is a bodily harm uh, that has been inflicted by uh, a vaccination must be reported. It's not something uh, minor, but this is a legal requirement. They must report this. If not, it's going to be 20,000 euros, exactly. And therefore, uh, you know, the doctors, I think, should be pointed out, uh, it should be pointed out to them. Well, in that case, you actually find these who diagnosed them, uh, the uh, people who had side effects and treated them, who didn't submit it. If you see the others, they uh, rejected exactly for this reason. They don't want a report. Um, but they won't get any money for that. They could close their uh, practice if they've got five, six uh, um, people who got side effects. Uh, you have to sit down at night and all night to do the reporting. It's impossible. And as they know it's impossible, they say simply no, no side effects, full stop. Yeah, these intensives that they made, I mean, that's devilish. That's the work of the devil. They knew exactly what they were doing. And what do we have to, uh, to, to do so that the doctors would not report this? And and then, you know, they, they, first they were allowed to do that, then they gave them certain incentives and they made it difficult for them. And and then, you know, when they did it, they got like a, a nice report. So there was a bundle of incentives uh, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Politically, it was it, it was malicious intent. Unfortunately, nobody noticed it. Well, if you have patients who still have the power and capability, they can be asked by the doctor to fulfill uh, fill out the pie formula. Most of the points can be reported by the patients themselves, including the reports that they have, and maybe the ad. The doctor will may may add two three things, and uh, that'll take them thirty minutes um, of work. Uh, that may reduce the workload a bit, but from the overall construction, the fines, and uh, following up false diagnoses um, that doctors have, um, <clears throat> there is the letters of the doctors' chambers. Uh, that were leaked, that there's lots of pressure on the doctors if you do it wrong, if they do it wrong, that's quite diabolical. I have a question uh, that just came in from the public. So this approval uh, it was only for Combinato or is for all of the vaccines? No, it, was, it was only Combinato. Ah, okay, so the other ones, uh, they still have to go through that. Yeah, I think so, but I didn't look into that. Moderna was uh, restricted, unrestricted approval up till now. I also have a question that I, I, I can answer, but um, it just occurred to me. According to the Genetic Act, uh, the genes, they change organisms, so um, RNA, which of course has a genetic effect in the cell. So is this then, are we talking about a 
genetically modifying aspects. I mean, normally when we're talking about uh, genetically modification, you know, like with yogurt and so on. We have um, exchanged a phase here by the gene, uh, replacing it with the gene which is not natural, and by that, uh, making this mRNA more stable and produce spike proteins for much longer. Maybe Ulrike can talk about that later on. That's the whole idea of it, modifying them in such a way that they um, won't do what the normal virus RNA will do. Yes, I suppose that would be a modification caused by genes. Can I can I ask two more questions? We're a bit behind on time. Well, <clears throat> well, you said at the beginning, you said half an hour, um, you, you said you wouldn't be able to fill it. Uh, but I mean, it's such a complex issue. We could be talking about for three hours. It's very, very differentiated work that you're doing. Maybe two more questions, because I think they're personally they're important. I didn't understand this Chinese study that you referred to. Is that on Combernati or the Chinese vaccine? No, this was about the uh, Chinese vaccine. And there's something um, to make you think, uh, because when you say this, so I have the vector, Vaccine and the mRNA vaccine have the same result. I have a spike protein. Then I basically have the same structure in all. But if that is the case, and I just assume it is as a theoretical base, then theoretically that can be used, which uh, is, is being expressed in the article. And what does it say in there? There are follow-up articles that also refer to Cominarti, and there is something that is even more shocking, and I even didn't even mention it so far. Mrs. Yoko herself, in the year 2005, in different magazines, and also in various journals, and she was uh, suggested to obtain uh, certain um, medals for that, that the immune system can be can be excluded so that there is no infection, so that the, uh, uh, the RNA can be introduced into the body. And these articles that are really, really old, if you look at that, then you see, and she writes, interesting things such as that she's proud to have managed to um, reduce the interferon communication and therefore the immune reaction could have been suspended. And that's very exciting. Uh, one was in a medical journal, the other one, I, I, if we have the time, I can, I can show it to you. I'll have it to you. I'll have it for you in a minute. Hang on, there we go. Kathleen Karioko, very interesting, uh, from the 21st of September 21, a very exciting and interesting passages here. And there it says that uh, this can be, we can, you know, draw on the experience with cancer treatment and then use these uh, uh, development of the uh, COVID-19 vaccination. 
and Zahin and the other people there explain, you know, what they have done and the great things that they have come up with. True. Thank you. And uh, my my last question, which is something that we briefly touched upon, if at all, Tobias, um, I heard an interview with you from last year where you addressed the question of the change in the legislation of the compensation that was in December 2021. There is uh, a different views on this, and um, it's about the burden sharing, and uh, this doesn't apply to this COVID vaccine story, but you said it does. The question is, did you detail that? No, 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 I didn't say yes to that. What I said is, I think it's incredible that they were prophetic at the time. You know, the ones that um, made these laws, uh, I admire them, quote unquote, that in 2019, they already knew that there would be um, vaccine damages. And then they went, um, you know, into different ranges of 200 euros, 400 euros, and then they used the social benefit uh, legislation in Germany so that people have to uh, be made poor first uh, before they get any money from the state. And that was very similar. And in my May 2022, there was uh, not the vaccination Dimitri VSV, and nobody knew that there was going to be a vaccination. But plan did it at a time when nobody was paying attention to it. Because basically, in there, you know, when it happened just at the time when the vaccines came out, then you uh, turn out that kind of regulation. No, no, they were prophetic in the sense that they did this years before. So that also looks um, makes you think about the measures that have been adopted at the same time, because um, all of these measures were already on the go. Uh, that casts a different light on the view of the parliament. Uh, Mr. Spahn was in good company with Ms. Merkel, who in April 2020 announced the pandemic, pandemic will only be ended with a vaccination. That was uh, Nostradamus, uh, <coughs> madame. And uh, it's a different quality for the parliament. I completely agree. Maybe I overinterpreted what you said. Sorry for that. But uh, the question is then what other background should this change in the legislation 2019 have had? Uh, measles doesn't have this uh, potential. And uh, if the whole parliament, there's only two ways to explain this um, uh, knowledge of the uh, perpetrator. So either the whole parliament was involved, which I don't really believe, or the proceedings are um, simply handled in the committees, and the parliament just passes this through. So one should look into the committee's meetings, what was discussed there. I think the parliament was completely overwhelmed with this. Um, they didn't have the specific knowledge to be able to understand what was happening. Most uh, members of parliament simply are unable to follow that. I remember that when we had the swine flu. I was fighting for over months to get attention. And I said what I knew, how difficult and how dangerous it was and how dangerous the vaccination was, but nobody paid attention. Nobody paid attention. He said, what the heck is this guy talking about? And then let's see, you know, what do the 
the party whip, what do they say? And then everybody nods. <coughs> so, parallel to this, I um, have informed all the federal parliamentarians. No, none of them have been spared out. Uh, there was only two uh, factions in the parliament who reported back. One was um, um, unspeakable and the other expectable. But I didn't want anybody to be able to say later on, I didn't know about this and I couldn't have known about this. And the good thing is most parliamentarians have set up an autoresponder to confirm the uh, reception. So I have a list of the confirmations of the people who got this. Um, I found that was very helpful. Um, I don't think it's the parliaments where we see this. We see this as the same organization worldwide. For decades, we've seen infiltration. We should get all the Bilderberger people, the WEF uh, followers, young global leaders, young global shapers. They should be identified. And actually, those who follow external and third party interests uh, other than the electorate's interests. And we should really ask the question, what are you doing? Whose interests do you stand in for? I can't in any way find that this is in the interest of the electorate or anybody else. Simply not. Right. Right. Okay, well, well uh, two more questions, but I think um, they're not so specific for here. Maybe we can address them at a later point. Now we are very much on delay. Uh, I don't want to call it delay. Uh, we've heard a lot, but for our schedule, I would have to say Ulrike Kemmer said she could uh, take it to the end so that we can carry on with the legal issues. Ulrike will join us at six. And um, so I'd like to thank you, Tobias. And uh, I don't know if you have any concluding remark. It was great the way you worked through all this measures, crises. It's great. And I hope that there will be some outcome. And um, we'll keep it up. And it's great that you really got so committed in the work. Thank you. Well, I can only ask uh, the other colleagues uh, and tell them that anybody who wants to, to contact me, receive the information, and I only ask you to understand that, of course, we can't give you the official court files, but the information that they need, they get. Fantastic. Great. We'll uh, post the link for the colleagues or whoever may be interested for working in this area. Also, what you've just shown, Corvin, is going to speak to you. Maybe you've got a couple of studies and things that we can link. I think it's important that the people understand this and can look it up. It's a very complex legal uh, area that we're working in here. Thank you for the great work. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. And well, so that was Tobias Ulrich who um, works for the patients of the side effects of the vaccines. Now, I'd like to hand over to Dr. David Jungblut, 
In our study here, studio, now we had to postpone your um, presentation once, um, and we ran out of time then. Now um, we won't postpone you again. Yeah, well, thank you very much for giving me the chance now, but it wouldn't have been a problem postponing it, but I'm glad I can do it now. Well, Wolfgang Wolfgang, he actually brought me onto this when the first time I participated, we talked about uh, to what extent you can actually ask uh, for information. Uh, uh, I, 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 I don't know to what extent uh, people are being told what to say or what not to say at the prosecution office. Uh, I'm sure that there are certain indications and um, this is within, you know, the culture of those offices of prosecution. But I wanted to try that once and to see what happens. And then when I worded this, I noticed two aspects. Well, first of all, there was the court of Berlin-Brandenburg that said that uh, there is um, no official claim that you actually get all the information. You can try it anyhow just to get on the nurse, but and what uh, caused me to make this presentation, and you know, I did uh, write it up very quickly. And I noticed that I don't really know what the, uh, the law that uh, the prosecution's office is bound by the instructions. Uh, according to Section 146, is something very difficult. And, of course, if anything ever doesn't work the way um, you like it, you know, that for that they get like an individual instruction. So that's why I thought it was interesting to take a look at that law. And then I thought, what can be done as an individual to simply probe these offices and I think it's important that you make yourself known and that you actually look at what they are doing. And the time will come when all of these things will be looked at in detail, and then they will see who is responsible. And then that, of course, is something uh, that may help. Not my presentation, of course, but the very fact that you do uh, use the tools to uh, initiate a process. Um, but let me start. I'll do it very quickly now as to not lose time. So this uh, 146, when it says F, it means plus the following sections. So it's section 146 and 147. And so these are the relevant provisions of parliamentary law on the binding of instructions. So it says there that um, the Offices of the public officers shall comply um, with the official instructions of their superiors. Um, but this is like a little bit of an in-between post because it looks like the prosecution, you know, are uh, only being con considered part of the judicial branch or the executive, executive branch, depending on what is convenient for them. 
I think it has to do a lot with who is the person who is the prosecutor. On the one hand, you're a little bit like a judge, but at the same time, you're formally appointed to be a judge, and then you are seconded to the prosecution's office. So all of that is very close to each other. And this is maybe the, the least of all the problems, or um, 146, uh, you know, they are bound by the instructions of their superior. And, and there is a legal definition here in 147. Uh, the federal minister of justice uh, has the right uh, of supervision and management, public prosecutors, uh, this is the, basically says that the Federal Minister of Justice, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he will not provide uh, instructions, of course, to the, to the court, because the courts, of course, are within the um, purview of the lender, the individual states of Germany. So this then is a part of the land administration of justice. And then uh, it is for the first uh, officials of the public prosecutor's office. These are the leading prosecutors. It's basically the administration of the uh, prosecution office. I mean, they are very hierarchical. Uh, so basically, you know, that makes them look like the exec like an executive office. And so the leading um, prosecutors are at the top, and they then provide instructions. And here you notice, so there is not one law of instruction, uh, the right of supervision, but uh, there are other organs that are included in this. And this is something that needs to be taken into account when you're talking about the aspects of uh, it within the corona framework. So we have the hierarchical structural principle Again, that looks a lot like uh, it is part of the executive branch rather than the judicial branch. Well, coming back to that in a minute. So, um, well, they say the prosecutor is bound by instructions uh, because they, uh, from a legal point of view, the decisive difference to the professional image of the judge. Um, uh, you know, we have that in Article 97 of the basic law. So, uh, judges independent in his decisions, at least according to the documented conception of the basic law. They're not really all that independent, but it is important to point out the judges individually are independent, not the courts. So, personally, uh, they are independent, which also means that, of course, they are accountable and responsible. So what is the type of the right of issue of instructions? There are two different types of the right of instruction. There's the internal one, and then there's the external right to issue instructions. And that depends on what I've just explained. Who is actually performing it? Is it the judicial administration, the Ministry of uh, Justice? So that will be the external um, 
right to issue instructions because they come from the outside. And then there is the internal one, uh, which uh, is uh, is then provided by um, superior prosecutors uh, who provide instructions to their inferiors. So here, maybe you see it in a better way, the structure of the public prosecution offices in Germany. So the federal ministry of justice and consumer protection, he only has this law of instruction uh, towards the um, federal public prosecutor and the federal Supreme Court. And then you have the state ministries of justice and they are on top of the public prosecutor's office of the federal lender and the public prosecutor's office of the respective judicial districts in the federal state. I'm from Hesse, uh, there it is in Frankfurt, and then, you know, they would be giving the instructions to the regional court of Darmstadt and the other districts. Okay, and now the federal public prosecutor general, how is that structured? Well, on top, of course, you have the attorney general, and he is a so-called political uh, official so he's not independent maybe a little bit more or less independent because he can be removed at any point of time by the minister without giving any reason so the minister of justice can fire him on the spot so <clears throat> the attorney general at the end of the day, he depends completely on the Ministry of Justice. And therefore, you know, that makes sense now uh, why, you know, things like what my colleague Mr. Ulrich just explained, you know, don't come to a fructiferous end. And the others, the federal prosecutors also work uh, uh, for the ministry. Political um, public prosecutor general, well, we know the, the attorney general, and we know that the last one, political civil servant, the one that was kicked out by Hakumas. I don't know what he did back then, and if I recall it, he was uh, removed directly uh, and for good. So if uh, the Ministry of Justice doesn't like it or the federal government as such doesn't like it, they can simply fire this guy and he's gone. And that may explain a few things that have occurred. And then he knows how to act or not to act. Okay. He's aware uh, of that, of course. The interesting thing here is that uh, the Public Prosecutor General's Office uh, expresses Verbis uh, as part of the executive branch. So it's not a judicial, not in the part of the judicial branch. So organizationally, it's part of the executive branch. And that is the same at the level of the lender. And what that means, I will tell you in a minute, uh, what are the tasks of the Office of the Attorney General? So if there's a problem, um, it could be mostly at the uh, level of the lender, because at the federal level of the tasks of the Office of the Attorney General, um, you know, they don't have such a range. Uh, the scope of the task is rather limited. Uh, you know, the, these are very important things, but in terms of their quantity, they are limited. Terrorism proceedings, espionage, proceedings under international criminal law and revision procedure. 
Also Revisionsverfahren sind die Verfahren, die zum Bundesgerichtshof gehen. So revision procedures are, you know, that were decided by a lower court and came then up to the top court. And this is something when we're talking about revision procedure, this may kick in now when we're talking about Corona legislation. Um, I said that earlier that the, uh, I mean, there is a crime against humanity because uh, this is simply the case here when uh, so the Attorney General would be responsible to investigate, but he doesn't. What is the hierarchy of the public prosecutor's office of the lender? Uh, it's in parallel the same at the top you have the attorney general and then you have the senior public prosecutor respective head of authority. And then you have the senior public prosecutor usually based on uh, the department. Um, and basically, they're head of departments. Uh, so there's uh, a department with four prosecutor, and the boss of that department would be the senior public prosecutor. And then below that, be below that, you have the public prosecutor, and then we would call the senior public prosecutor. Okay, coming back to the internal right of issue, to issue instructions. instructions. Well, within the prosecution, it is such that uh, instructions may be given. So the senior uh, prosecutor can pass it down to the junior prosecutor and so on. So the individual department heads may pass down instructions and since this inside an administration is called internal. So that's not, not extremely unusual if you look at it as part of the executive branch, because I mean, that's what you have in a hierarchical structure that the upper echelons give instructions to a lower echelons. And part of that is also the law of instructions which is done by the general prosecutor's office because he, of course, is the head of all of the prosecutors um, and may therefore provide instructions. And you see that in certain proceedings that you have in the code. Uh, so when it comes to having to uh, enforce um, a proceeding, in other words, if uh, the prosecutor refuses to open proceedings, then he can go to the next level and ask uh, for it to be carried out. And the basis for that is uh, 172 and section 172 of the criminal justice procedure. And the same applies to the Code of Criminal Procedure, um, that if they see that the um, attitude of a, per, of a prosecutor is something that uh, uh, you don't agree with, or the prosecutor says, no, you, you're an idiot that you're actually trying to take that to court. So that would be like the direct responsibility of one person, but also in less drastic cases, if they simply 
don't work a case because they um, therefore show that they don't have any respect for the desire of a citizen because a citizen wanted protection. That's why he approached the prosecution. Um, and of course, they themselves have the right to initiate uh, investigation. But what is interesting here is the external right to issue instructions. In other words, to what extent other parts of the execution may influence and infer uh, their power into the regional prosecutions officers. So we have 147, section 147, number one and number two. Um, and here you have to look at the different types of exercise of the right of issue under section 146. First of all, the general orders uh, and then the instructions in individual cases. I do that uh, to point out that the second one, of course, is the interesting part for us because that's the one that is difficult to understand because it's not transparent at all. But these are the uh, general rules and regulations and these are instructions within the framework of the internal right to issue uh, instructions. Uh, this is again part of the internal right of, uh, to issue instructions. And there are certain guidelines as to how uh, prosecutions often have to deal with it also uh, when it comes to uh, uh, what punishment they're asking for, you know, if it's a felony and they're asking for for uh, theft, one one's like 30 days and the other one uh, is asking for three years in jail. Um, so, uh, in other words, to make sure that there is no such discrepancy, you have these general instructions here so that it's also something that is uh, foreseeable. I mean, at least that is the official reasoning. And this is only uh, made in order to, you know, have it more unified. So it's not so spectacular and they are rather transparent, more or less at least. Uh, but at least you have them in writing and you can get them. The most known general instruction, um, which is uh, for the fees, um, this is what the uh, most uh, lawyers well know because they have been confronted with this during their study. This is kind of written instruction on how the prosecutors should behave, to put it very generally. These are binding for the prosecutors because they are subject to the instruction, but the um, introduction says that it is a guideline for the judges as well, but that's not very spectacular. It says, for example, for especially um, <clears throat> severe cases, the um, prosecutors should uh, go to the scene of a crime or something like that. Nothing very special, however, um, it illustrates what these general instructions cover. Uh, another area is the uh, petty crime decree, which is, I think, uh, resumed now saying that um, shoplifting uh, for damages up to 25 euros should not be uh, fulfilled 
for call it uh, economic reasons <clears throat> in order to be able to manage it um, it's a bit of a strange uh, idea um, we saw that it happened in California um, where these things were prosecuted and that led to an explosion of shoplifting of course that's not in the sense of particular uh, property <clears throat> now we look we're coming to the core of the case which is the instructions in individual cases which could be issued by uh, the senior prosecutors and I'll skip this as it's not so important but uh, maybe um, the question is where are these corona I call it uh, cases where are they dropped is that uh, done by the prosecutors themselves because they think it's bullshit or because they know that they have nothing good to expect if they uh, act uh, respectively or whether they have got a concrete instruction so it may be on behalf of their own motivation or because they believe the narrative or it could be the case that the heads of the departments um, behold the decision so maybe a prosecutor wants to send this out and wants to pick up investigations first of all because usually this doesn't happen and the head of the department says no no don't do that this is due to a lack of an initial um, suspicion that may be halted at that level as well uh, it mustn't be done by the Ministry of Justice but to look at this on a legal basis rather than looking at the motivational side uh, there is the general uh, comment on this the reasoning is that the prosecutors even at the lowest level have to work on their own responsibility and the uh, prosecution is first of all subject to the law and then they say they mustn't be harassed or bullied neither by their head of the partner nor any higher level so we have an independent action of the prosecution independent of anybody else so that means they can't uh, restrict and uh, um, withdraw on gotting, having got an instruction and um, this has a legal consequence at least uh, in a case in the rule of law it would have and um, um, this is uh, an application to the prosecutors to really get going otherwise they can be held responsible um, you said it, uh, in another session the uh, predators will uh, become the victims and here we have a couple of more points I just like to skip and now really come to the crucial point which is the individual instructions in the context of the external right to issue instructions so that is from the ministry or the federal ministry to the general uh, attorney or the 
general prosecution at state levels, department heads, and so on. And I put three questions mark, marks here because I didn't find anything uh, concerning this, neither in general in the internet nor in the comments on the literature. There doesn't seem to be any known cases. And this may be correlating with the intransparency that we have in this area. And uh, there seems to be a certain hint that if you don't find anything, of course, one possibility is that this has never happened. However, I think don't think that's very likely. So it's rather a black box, and that's why the question marks are here. One doesn't know anything. I haven't found anything. And if something exists, it's very hidden. When these political instruction have been issues, in which cases, and uh, by far there's nothing in the corona context. There are some reporting obligations I want to mention here, and these mean that on behalf of the um, authorities, the prosecutors have to report on special proceedings uh, to, uh, in order to get instructions on behalf of the ministry, because if the ministry doesn't have any uh, knowledge about the special proceedings, they can't give any instructions. So there is report obligatory reporting, <coughs> and I mentioned these here why you'll find out in a minute so this is uh, the prosecution reporting to the ministry if there are special precary um, proceedings going on so thanks of the colleagues um, subject this 192 uh, page uh, complaint that surely has been reported to the federal ministry and in most cases, in the corona context, at least in the beginning, they behaved like this. Maybe it has uh, dropped in importance so far, but the ministries do know when these proceedings are opened. But there are limits to the rights to issue instructions. It's always said a bit on uh, behalf of the opposition and the resistance that it is problematic simply because there is this external right to issue instructions and this is why you can't do anything because it is just a misconstruction of the uh, legal system but you can't take things as simple as that because um, the um, basic principles of the legal of the rule of law apply here and this means that a prosecution is obliged to start investigations if they have any um, suspicion of a crime this is a fundamental um, principle of the rule of law and this is why it is higher <coughs> in the hierarchy of norms and the same applies to the um, <coughs> principle of objectivity you can't rely on somebody giving you instructions as a prosecution but these are applicable principles which uh, prevail over individual instructions and this is something I briefly comment on only. There can only be instructions if there is a range of discretion. If the uh, 
legal stipulations are very clear, only allowing for a single uh, decision, there is no room for any instruction, also not externally by the ministry. So we have a strictly uh, strict binding of the prosecution to the rule of law and um, there is no possibility for instruction. Although this is only on paper, practical life is a bit different and I have mentioned before that this is not particular in the corona cases, but it's only illustrated very clearly here. Um, so all um, instructions based on external non-judicial considerations are inadmissible. So uh, the effect of pharmaceuticals is surely non-legal here. So there is a discussion which I'd like to skip in how far this is actually um, legitimized. Um, there is things that you can look up later on. Maybe we can put this up. Um, for later reading, and uh, I'd like to directly move on to the summary, and uh, if I say what we say, the arguments that um, speak for the right to issue instructions are quite contradictory, um, of course, leading to the suspicion that uh, it is not based on the rule of law, but on other reasons. And um, the point is to filter unwanted uh, uh, causes and uh, complaints. Of course, that may not sound new to some of the audience, but if you look uh, at what this look like, looks like and what the uh, situation is, it is not very convincing. And this suspicion is underpinned by the uh, point I mentioned earlier, which is the intransparency, because the uh, Freedom of Information Act does not apply here, and there are no other means to verify these things. And so how could one remove this uh, bad light, which I've just sh shed on the whole situation. That would be the case if one could look at the files and see what uh, has been instructed. And this is not possible, not even for the courts, because it is said that these uh, instructions uh, do not have to be included in the files. Uh, usually, this is initiated by the police. And then the prosecution takes over, they have their file, and when the proceedings are closed, and if there is, uh, the uh, case is brought in front of court, and uh, then the file is uh, presented to the court, and here there is no instruction in uh, case of doubt, and uh, if the uh, proceedings are dropped, then the file won't go to the court anyway. So the court does not know of any instructions. Uh, could be a certain point taken to court and certain aspects are excluded, which is questionable in the uh, rule of law because the court is ordered to keep up the check of balances and powers and uh, monitor the work of the prosecution. 
and uh, in the sense of checks and balances, this is a monitoring function. And uh, if you file a criminal case with the police or the prosecution and the proceedings are dropped or not even opened, as we've often had nowadays, you can ask to look at the files and you'll get the files. Uh, or you can go to the court if you're not a lawyer, you won't get the file. Uh, but then it is said these instructions are not part of the file. And if the work is done properly, then they only go to the manual file, which is the special file, which is maintained for things that are not public and uh, not provided to others. So again, here, no possibility to find out whether the proceedings were dropped because the minister interfered or the head of department or whether the prosecution themselves didn't want to. My experience is that the uh, prosecutions get some arguments uh, why they shouldn't start uh, the uh, investigation. And it always looks as if it were the decision of the prosecution. Um, and so the responsibility is diffused here. And that is something that we know. You never know who the enemy is. And in concrete, it's always unclear. Uh, who is responsible and who started and stopped certain things. And of course, that has nothing to do with transparency, neither with the rule of law. And now the last point in this context, as far as transparency is concerned, or that could make things more transparent, um, and the uh, freedom of information requests are not applicable here. Um, there is a court proceedings here to the uh, Supreme Court, and we, of course, know what we can expect. As Wilfred Schmitz has uh, shown us quite clearly, the reasoning being that uh, see and wonder it is a concern of the legal system and the Information Freedom Act is only applicable to executive powers. <clears throat> as far as I know, this is the case. This is true. The question why it's not extended in its uh, applicability is wonderful. It's um, questionable why only one of the three powers in the state should be covered by it, independent whether you can understand the concept of the uh, act or not. We have seen that the um, prosecution general is an executive organ, so their issues should be covered by the Freedom of Information Act. And as I said before, it's not quite clear why the why it's only the general federal prosecution um, who should be subject to this, uh, and the general prosecutions of the individual states should not as they both do the same work. So that's not quite plausible, and it would be surprising if it were. And now, maybe a brief excursion on what has become general knowledge, which is two decisions, to be quite clear, of the European Court of Justice, um, which um, certified to the German prosecutions that they are not juridical authorities. So if they are not no legal of um, 
uh, authorities, so then they can't be assigned to the legal system, and that would lead them to be executive bodies because they are not a legislative body. So we have a high court decision here, and as far as, as the Freedom of Information Act is concerned, um, this gives an answer to the question, and it's known that the German prosecution uh, are not allowed to issue European warrants and they are not uh, allowed to um, execute um, court rulings on an international level and the reason is briefly speaking that the uh, right of issuing instructions um, limits the independency of these prosecutors and that's why they are not allowed to do as many things as others maybe so maybe a nice surprise that the european court of justice ruled this however we've talked about this before that uh, the further the, the the longer the distances are between the different bodies you could expect a certain um, appropriate ruling and the european court of justice is not so close to the German prosecution that you may think of something here, but it doesn't mean that in other contexts they are objective. Here they didn't hurt anybody too much, and this is why they simply kicked it out here, and uh, I don't think this should spark too much hope. What the German um, prosecutions can do, according to the European rule, uh, they can um, interview people and investigate and uh, now this is something that not so many people will be aware of the federal ministry of justice has reacted to this ruling in january 21 because some, somehow they had to if they are accused by that that they are not independent what an absurd idea and they have uh, started to develop a legal act which is uh, looks more than it really is because this external right of um, instruction that's why i explain what it is was part of this european court of justice uh, ruling and um, this should be done away with now, however, not for cases within Germany, but only for mutual legal assistance within the European Union. So you only do what you have to do in uh, be able to uh, go the round with the big dogs as well, uh, but only in cases of the European context. So if Poland asks uh, Germany, um, then they can become active, but not within the German jurisdiction, which is of crucial, um, at least in far as of cases, numbers of cases are concerned. So if this actually is uh, becomes reality, and uh, so that's nice, and there should be a written uh, um, copy of the individual instructions, so they shouldn't be able, should not be allowed to be done by phone or text message, but they should be noted and documented somewhere with the official reasoning that, although I don't know whether that only applies to the European uh, context or domestically as 
well. The reasoning is that a parliamentarian control should take place. Of course, here the question is how much to how far, to what extent will parliaments look at this? It has to be near shit in some way. And the second point is that somebody who files a complaint or a uh, a uh, predator um, must uh, do something because um, as individuals uh, they will um, have to look at the cases. Usually we look at uh, victims and damage sides and not about the parliament here. So I think that's it's a bad joke, actually, but that's the normal way of acting. You do something, it's supposed to look good, and if you look into the detail, it's just hot air, not much more. And again, here, the uh, general right of um, instruction should be restricted to cases where there is a room for discretion. That is the current rule of law. If the law um, does not leave any room for discretion, um, that uh, there's no question about any instructions. So this simply picks up on what is legally uh, required and laid down as well. So this is ridiculous as well. And then the last point um, uh, is uh, really um, it has to make clear that uh, instruction should be free from uh, non-legal issues. So this is really a lot of rubbish. And what does the coalition contract say of this great government that we have? They commented uh, with this uh, paragraph here. You may read it in accordance with the requirements of the European Court of Justice. We are adapting the external ministerial individual case referral vis-a-vis -vis two public prosecutors' offices. A juridical decision is required for the execution of the European arrest warrant. That's not really worth the paper. It is written on, so it's in the flow, but it's not going to lead uh, very far. And let's move on to the present and the point which I think is crucial. What can one do and um, sort of say after this opening, we have seen that a prosecutor is, uh, first of all, subject to the rule of law, which is uh, not um, the ministry of somewhere, but they uh, have to work to the code of uh, jurisdiction. And if they get an illegal instruction, just like any other officer, uh, he is obliged, in this case, this is a service of state. He uh, not, may not remonstrate, but they must remonstrate. Um, that is part of the legal registration. We've had this in the teachers' sit-ins, where only a few do, uh, uh, teachers did. And there is an obligation to remonstrate of the prosecution. So they can't get out of the way by saying, I followed instruction. And if uh, that is kept up, um, the instruction is kept up despite of the demonstration, it must not be followed by the prosecutor if they would render themselves liable to prosecutions themselves. And this is something that we have here. If the legal proceedings are not taken up or dropped, uh, the point is um, if we have uh, sufficiently 
um, valid points for a uh, pointing out a crime and um, due to a certain instruction uh, the inspection is not done, the investigation is not done, we have a case of bending the law, and uh, we could look at the mask cases here, for example, then uh, following of uh, persecution of uh, innocent people or executing um, against innocent people. This is a uh, criminal act, and if the prosecution follows this, uh, contrary to their inner morale, they are liable and they can't refer to an instruction that they've got. So again, every prosecutor at the lowest level are subject to the rule of law and nothing else. Now, um, there's two possible constellations of the corona cases. One is uh, for the people who were against the corona measures, doctors, uh, judges, for example, the judge and Weimar, but the main number of cases will be so-called corona measures. And um, this is just examples to quickly go through this. But um, here there should surely be an initial suspicion, for example, assuming that the masks are not helpful and uh, to see how much damage they may occur if they do protect against anything. So if uh, this is done, and this is uh, about the people who uh, do the decrees, and uh, we have the crimes here, which are still, which still exist and still are subject to prosecution. Um, so uh, that can be done. And uh, to put it bluntly, the mask mandates and the execution of the mask mandates can have uh, bodily injury offenses, maltreatment, uh, for example, in, as uh, official offenses. So um, this applies to um, people who work in the public offices, um, for, uh, especially after the legal mask mandate when the authorities asked people to wear that. There was no legal basis for this. That would be an example. Um, the maltreatment of a ward, especially in schools, this plays uh, a role, and coercion plays a role as well. Other things could be, uh, I call it the gene uh, technical injection, as I said. Uh, you may know what I mean. It's murder, manslaughter. And uh, not as a general point, but as a criminal offense. And here, these are on the agenda, sadly enough, um, um, murder, by the way, with uh, lifelong sentences, nothing less, uh, serious bodily injury, uh, dangerous bodily harm, maltreatment of persons under protection, old people in care homes, for example, refugee homes as well, this should be looked at. They um, uh, went uh, out to them quickly who were defenseless. Um, if we look at this uh, video that we saw, 
of the ex-wife of someone. Coercion uh, is one thing. So all of these are offenses, masks, injections that could be filed and that should be filed. Isolation, again here, this may be bodily injury depending on a maltreatment of people, uh, deprivation of liberty, restriction of liberty. The colleague talked about this. Uh, coercion in office and in general, we talked about this a number of times. Due to the attack to the civil society, we have an offense in paragraph 7, VGSTBGB, um, crimes against humanity. This is something that one has to look at. Um, the idea of the paragraph is that certain parts of the population should be deleted. So if everybody is still to be uh, wiped out, that is far more of a um, uh, of a uh, respective crime. So, uh, I just want to make clear why do the prosecutions have to take action here, and I would like to uh, refer this to the colleagues uh, working at Krista, uh, saying it's not enough to do some publications. They are the critical judges and prosecutors, so on their own behalf, they have to uh, start uh, uh, inspections. And um, what I've just said applies to everyone, because um, they started to do investigations. And if there is an initial um, indication, it's not so clearly defined. However, it says if there is sufficient factual indication for a criminal offense, and this is what we have if there is a possibility of a criminal offense. So it's a very, very low threshold here, and the literature says this, and uh, this has been ruled out a number of times, and we don't know, need anybody to go to see the prosecutors. Um, it's uh, to uh, report something. It's enough if any prosecutor uh, sees, uh, for example, this show, reads a newspaper article, um, hears about somebody dying in their um, environment. That would lead to uh, an investigation. And if they don't do this, uh, then they will be themselves punishable according to criminal law. So again, the appeal for everyone, take action. And now the final point is what can the individual person do? And uh, it's uh, just about uh, developing a lot of counterpressure, trying to show that we can turn the table around and that we know what the proceedings are. And that's what I wanted to show here with my presentation. We don't know the individual proceedings, but we know the general setup and we know where the instructions were possibly given or could be given. And we should make clear to the authorities that we look at what they're doing. Um, prosecution is a kind of black box. There's people who were concerned, who have no lobby, but now we are in a different different context. We are looking at Corona and everybody's looking at Corona, at least in the opposition side. And this is a great opportunity because we can shed a light on all this thing. So what can one do? 
Well, what is the possible course of action? If you have the suspicion of an illegal act, you have to lay in a claim. And then uh, often the course will not even be started. Very often they write uh, just one line saying there is no initial suspicion. And we know, of course, suspicion is a given. Um, <coughs> Even, even then, they simply suspend it, and uh, you have to insist on seeing the file that is kept manually. Do not be fobbed off with the electronic file, uh, because file notes are usually made manually. Uh, and Especially when you are acting as an individual, uh, then you should insist to actually see the manual file and not the electronic one. Simply because, <coughs> and you know, I know that from my own work as a prosecutor, because the most important points, the criteria, certain aspects uh, that may not be absolutely legal, then um, you write that on the back of the file. And you, um, you know, often you only get the front page, but you never see uh, the back because the backside is the interesting one, and that's the one that you want to take a look at. So you have to insist that you get it. And uh, what else can be done? Um, you have the sexual approach. Up to here, everything is for free. doesn't cost any money. You can investigate enforcement proceedings, a complaint enforcement proceedings pursuant to Section 172. Um, and you know, if you actually go through the pains of doing that and then they, you know, fob you off with some um, trash like this, <coughs> um, and but they don't like it at all because it gets into the personal file. That's the reason why they don't like it. So you have to uh, put in a disciplinary complaint. It's free of charge, doesn't cost you. Normally, you don't uh, get too much of a success there. But if you do something, make sure it's done in writing. And um, you it should do it in such a way that it doesn't take up uh, too much of your time uh, and, of course, something that doesn't cost money. And what else is possible, too? Like everything that I just uh, talked about, um, take it to court. Um, if um, they uh, suspend a proceeding or not even open it, um, Make sure you point out to them that the prosecutor uh, may be acting illegally. Uh, prosecutors are people, maybe more persons than uh, many of us. Um, don't don't have that heroic image of these people. Uh, in, 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 in most cases, you know, they're uh, couch potatoes sitting in, in front of their desk and uh, they are not the big heroes. So what is very important, uh, if you, for example, take them to court because of the masks or whatever, um, then 
you have a correct presentation of the fact because if you do not present it correctly or if you add something to it or something or you leave something out then uh, you yourself uh, may be doing something illegal and they may take you to court but if you do it correctly um, then that's fine even if they disagree with you it will not have any consequences under civil service law um, and, and if um, this uh, leads to the fact that somebody uh, is being taken uh, actually punished uh, because of such an act in office um, I mean that's something that's not very likely to occur from what I look at at the moment but it's good to kick them in their asses and uh, to point out what kind of role they're supposed to be playing and what in fact they are doing uh, each and everyone has to decide to what extent they want to do that and it's always a good idea to be active and this is sort of like a, a, a small guideline as to what you can do to uh, make them feel a bit uncomfortable all right thank you very much that's about it i hope it was not too much in such a short period of time I think that's a very good overview and uh, you can look it all up and I think this instruction on how to get active uh, <clears throat> what is very very important uh, from what we've seen I mean all of that uh, you know it's just like uh, playing tennis with the authorities but but you know if uh, you you ask if in fact any instructions have been given um, when, for example, proceedings have not been opened, you ask at the prosecution's office and also with the leading senior uh, prosecutor and also the one who's in charge of the entire authority and the general prosecutor and even at the Ministry of Justice, you ask, have just uh, uh, instructions been issued? They will not answer, but then they will see you are actually looking at what they are doing and the same is for the reports I just mentioned um, the reports that are sent to the ministry yes are there any reports that have been prepared in the proceedings and if so uh, you know what was the reaction and again they may not answer too much in detail but it's always good uh, and it's the same addressees uh, the people who decide this and the final final point uh, you know procedure under the Freedom of Information Act um, request under the Freedom of Information Act as to whether instruction has been given under section 146 and and this is really my last chart and uh, my conclusion um, I mean, the Ukraine story is on top of everything now, and the climate thing is another thing. But for Corona, well, you know, we have, uh, there's a lot of pressure here. And I think most of it is going to implode at one point or another. So, and but I think it's better to do it now, to really, really put pressure on them to make sure that all of that is going to collapse and part of that is the this uh, activity 
and to do it in the public. Um, uh, tell your friends, family about it. And what is also important, the people have to address by name. So you're not only a member of the prosecution's office, but you're also responsible as an individual. Um, and you have to check to what extent that is allowed. But in mind, these are people who are in public offices. You can imagine uh, and, and, and wonder uh, why you cannot publish the names of judges or prosecutors if they break the law in that fashion. And uh, you have to make sure that it is compatible uh, with confidentiality requirements. Well, in public hearings, you will be able to do this probably. <clears throat> Yeah, you're right. Well, I think it's good, and maybe at this point we could just uh, have Klaus Schwab's little statement, who um, complains about the headwind that he's experiencing. Scientifically, this is not a climate crisis. This is kind of climate crisis. We are now facing something deeper. Mass extinction, air pollution, undermining ecosystem functions really putting humanity's future at risk. This is a planetary crisis. This is a safety crisis, but above all, it is also a justice crisis. Many areas in the world are uninhabitable. This uninhabitable zone is increasing. If we continue with our greenhouse gas emissions, then by 2070, as many as 3 billion people will live in uninhabitable zones. Enough already, enough. And I don't want to get sidetracked onto what needs to happen, but we need to scale up climate finance, but we need desperately to scale down anti-climate finance. And we are still subsidizing the burning of fossil fuels globally at a rate 42 times larger than the subsidies for the shift toward renewables and EVs, uh, <clears throat> etc. We need new leadership at the World Bank. We need them to uh, scale up the leverage and vastly increase the amounts that are, are committed. And we need to rein in the anti-climate activities. Coming back to what the Prime Minister said, in an idle European world, my idea would be that we have a common European fiscal policy, not only money policy, but also fiscal policy, but this we don't have. And therefore, of course, national economies, national states, national ministries for economic affairs are doing their job in a way. And I would like to act in brackets in an idle European world. My idea is that one day or the other we have a common federal European republic, but brackets closed. This is not for today. Okay, also es gab, gibt noch einen anderen. Bitte, bitte macht mal den. Ach so, ja genau, Scholz und Schwab kommen da zum Schluss. Ich sage ganz kurz noch was, also es ist jetzt eine kleine äh, Compilation, kleine Zusammenfassung sozusagen von dem, was uns da als Agenda präsentiert wird. Und jetzt kommt noch mal hinterher die Einschätzung von Klaus Schwab, dass da doch erheblicher Gegenwind ist. Ich glaube, es kommt vorher noch Scholz und dann wird Schwab was dazu sagen. Letzte Woche haben sich die Gesundheitsminister der G7 auf einen Pact for Pandemic Readiness verständigt. Dabei geht es um einen besseren Datenaustausch, um die Vernetzung internationaler Gesundheitsexpertinnen und Experten und um die Mobilisierung schneller Einsatzteams, die im Ernstfall einen Ausbruch bekämpfen sollen. Und wir werden Force, uh, a task force, and we want to strengthen the World Health Organization. And internationally, we have uh, agreed to 
um, make sure that they get proper financing. And uh, Davos has been given the impulses for that because uh, we had the global uh, alliance and that was good. We have to lift our hearts and open our hearts. We have to make it possible to carry on despite of the heavy headwind that we experience. And we have to bring our hearts into what we're doing. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? So he apparently doesn't. Uh, he 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 thinks that it's not so easy to implement all the things that they had envisioned, and that they uh, need to put in a bit more from their side. Let's see uh, how uh, these kicks. Uh, will uh, be affecting everybody. And I mean, the thing that he speaks of the heart, but I mean, if anything has been heartless, it's the po politics. And especially when you look at collateral damage and how they were dealing with all the difficulties of mankind and humankind, that's something incredible. And then a guy like him uses the word heart. And uh, he is right at the center of uh, this. Uh, and he say that his, warm, his heart is, is, is warming. That's incredible. Well, um, Schultz uh, sounded a bit funny. I think uh, what we've seen before, it's a bit macabre. Um, first thing is, what are they talking about <coughs> saying if we have to carry on? What with? What's this program that he talks about? Uh, it was taken out of context, of course, but also if you see Mr. Harvick and Mr. Schultz, Mr. Harvick, like a little schoolboy. Um, who just uh, got caught, like, been picking in his nose, and uh, Schultz just uh, putting in his uh, contribution. Uh, there's no intent to 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 show um, who is uh, or not to show who's the master and who's the servant. And uh, when I saw this, uh, who is uh, there? The normal people don't see this. I don't think you see this on the news. Nobody watches this on the internet for free. Or is that for us? Maybe it's interesting to get some interpretation. Beyond that, it's kind of internal event. Or who's the public? Well, I guess is uh, that they are trying to uh, inspire each other. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe it is what they say that uh, they just presented to you uh, under our eyes. And if we uh, we don't put up any resistance, well, then that's the way it is. Okay, we had one important question that we had uh, in the internet now. Um, if you can say, what is the percentage of the justice apparatus that you think is still in a functioning order? Well, I'm not the right person in inverted commas to answer that. The first question is, what would you mean with functioning of the legal system? Two weeks when I was here last time, I quoted uh, something that a lawyer came up in a philosophy TV a radio session and he talked about reports, a high two-digit figure of all verdicts are wrong. I think I recall 30-40%, I'm not sure. Um, that was about 2010, that there was an official statistic, and uh, the point was um, there were 
expertises uh, prepared by the ministry. And when the result was published, and probably is too low, it uh, was locked up in the drawer. And uh, we talked about it. Um, I don't think things have gotten better since then. Uh, but uh, I don't think we need to talk about this too much in detail now. The problem being independent of what would you understand a functioning juridical system, I think there's a couple of structural issues. And even if you could quantify it and arrive at a low value, although I assume, and that's a simple estimate from my own professional experience, if you have, if you understand right decisions or right, right, or right decisions, right, uh, verdicts, right prosecution, and final decisions, and right proceedings, uh, listening to evidence, and so on, in other areas as well. I worked in the migration area mostly. That's about listening to the people who are concerned. It's disastrous. Surely, not everybody coming to Germany has a reason for asylum, but you have to illustrate the background. And this doesn't happen in front of the courts, <coughs> at least to a part, it doesn't at all. And uh, <coughs> it's desolate, one could say. In my point of view, just like in other areas, it's unreformable. I think there has to be a very fundamental <coughs> structural change. I don't know what that needs to look like in detail. So I can't give a concluding figure, but it is as disastrous that you can't um, work with this justice system on the court of uh, on the rule of law. That's really amazing. Well, maybe I can add. This is something that is known for a long time, and maybe um, talking about uh, last week's sessions with Gordon Pankala where he talked about the criminal proceedings against corona uh, demonstrators. Um, that was uh, quite illustrative, but that's not, that wasn't specifically corona. That was normal. That's what they do. Normally, it's the material truth that plays a role. Um, the prosecution is objectively obliged to find out what happened and assess it. And usually, that's not done. That's incredible and hard to believe. So, jetzt geht's an I hear that our new uh, next guest is here, Jennifer Say. Are you with us? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, hello. Great that you're here. Hi. Um, sorry, it took us a little longer. We've been uh, okay. discussing things a bit more intensely today. So, let me just say a few words uh, with regard to your. Um, former career, you are a former uh, chief uh, marketing officer and then brand, brand president of the uh, Levi Strauss & Co. Um, company until uh, January 2020, uh, 2022. And uh, you've, you, before that, you've been employed with um, Levi's uh, since 1999. So it's a really, that has been a very long career with them. And um, yeah, you're one of the producers of the 2020 next Netflix documentary, Athlete A, on the Larry Nasser scandal at um, at the 
uh, USA Gymnastics, which won an Emmy for the Outstanding Investigative Documentary. And currently you're working, producing and directing a feature-length documentary film that face, uh, focuses on the impact to children from school closures and other restrictions during the pandemic. So you have you have a sub-stack, sub which is jennifersay.substack.com. Uh, Com. So that's been, you've been very active, I see, in a very, in a variety of fields. And um, yeah, maybe you can give us a bit, I don't know if there's something you would like to add to the, to you, your CV. And then I'm also very interested to hear what you, um, what you've been experienced uh, seeing um, in both like school and fashion uh, business, uh, so to say, yeah. during the uh, measure crisis. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I would add is um, I wrote a book that came out in the last uh, month or two called Levi's Unbuttoned, which really, um, it, I mean, it tells the story of, of what I went through in my last two years at Levi's and in uh, standing up for kids, essentially, and um, the censorship and the silencing I faced internally and externally. But it also just is about my life and career um, as a woman in corporate America coming up. But I'll, I'll uh, capture a lot of the key points um, in the book when I sort of tell the whole story. Okay, yeah, so we have to look at you that. Um, yeah, so then just go ahead. Give it with, a go. Uh, yes. Yeah, sure. Um, and you tell me if I'm rambling and going on for too long, but <laughs> um, you know, you hit the highlights. I spent uh, over almost 23 years at Levi's. You know, I started as an entry level assistant and worked my way all the way up the ladder in um, October of 2020. I was promoted to brand president and in line for CEO. Um, I was really proud of that. I loved the company, um, but I ultimately did not become the CEO. I quit. I was asked, uh, well, in, in, um, in January of 22, I was told there was no longer a place for me in the company because of my outspokenness uh, on the restrictions to children. But I was offered severance. Uh, that would come with the signing of a non-disclosure agreement. And I was not willing to sign that because I wanted to be able to talk to folks like you and tell this story because I was increasingly alarmed at the silencing and the censorship not just as it pertains to COVID, but you know more broadly as well. So I quit in a really public fashion. Um, you know, I quit with an op-ed telling the story uh, on Barry Weiss's Substack, and I'm going to tell you that story today of everything that happened in the last uh, two years at Levi's. But I want to go back in time a little bit because I think it's relevant. Um, as you mentioned, I had a very unusual childhood. I was a gymnast, and for those that don't know. Um, it can be a very cruel sport. I think a lot of that was exposed with the case of Larry Nasser, which I think probably even reached you guys there in Germany. Um, but I was training six, seven, sometimes 10 hours a day as a 10 and 12 year old. Um, I was the national champion in 1986. Uh, but during my career as a gymnast, and I've come to understand this is true around the world, not just in the United States, uh, but I endured a forced starvation diet. Uh, you know, food was taken from us. We had to subsist on less than 400 calories a day. Uh, we were fat shamed. We were weighed in twice a day. It was announced on the loudspeaker. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I trained on serious injuries like a broken ankle for two years. 
So um, it was all very difficult at the World Championships in 1985 in Montreal. I broke my femur on the last event and I came back in less than a year to win the USA Championships, which sounds quite brave. But in fact, it was pretty self-destructive, as you as you might imagine, to not allow oneself to heal and come back and do that. And, you know, despite my successes, I left the sport pretty ashamed and beaten down at about the age of 19. I was depressed and had horrible nightmares and PTSD. And I say all of this because, you know, I mean, I was depressed to the point of suicidal ideation. I felt I had no value in the world beyond the sport. And 20 years later, I wrote my first book, which was called Chopped Up in 2008. And it was really the first first person account of the cruelty in the sport. And it was my first experience with being, you know, quote unquote, canceled. <laughs> I didn't uh, Now It was in a much smaller uh, audience amongst a much smaller audience than what ultimately I would go through in regards to COVID, but it was a good warm up. <laughs> I, I sort of learned to steel myself against the, the angry mob, but you know, no one was ready for me to say the things I said about the sport. And so I was threatened with legal action and violence and all sorts of stuff and I was not really prepared for that but I continued to speak out because I wish someone had spoken up for me as a child you know and I think this really informs um much of what I would do gosh how many years later you know 12 12 years later when it comes to COVID, um, I learned very fast that it really stinks to go first and to say true things first, but eventually people join you. It took 10 years um, within the world of sports, but in around 2018, when Larry Nasser, who for those that don't know, was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics, who sexually assaulted over 500 young athletes, when he was finally sent to prison, everybody was like, oh, we agree with you. You know, we stood by you all along. But I, of course, remember that they, in fact, did not. And anyway, I was a hero for about, you know, six months. Um, but then I started to speak out about COVID. So in March of 2020, from the very first, from the beginning, um, March 13th in California is when everything shut down. California went first. The governor sort of prided himself, Governor Gavin Newsom, on his leadership here. Um, he really set the stage for the nation. And I was outspoken from day one. Um, I had been studying the data that had already been coming out of Italy. And it was clear that the median age of death was over 80, which meant that children were mercifully protected and really not at any serious risk. I also, I mean, I went down every rabbit hole. I, you know, I studied the pre-pandemic playbooks, which said never close schools for more than four weeks, even with far higher um, fatality rates. And it just all seemed so insane to me that we could, sh that we would shut down the world like this, think that children would not be harmed, that everyday folks wouldn't be harmed, businesses wouldn't go under, all of this stuff. So I was very outspoken. I don't think I realized at first how controversial that was going to be. I learned very quickly that that was um, very, very controversial. So I lived in San Francisco at the time, which is really a, a bastion of sort of progressive, they would call themselves progressive politics. But, and somehow, the woke stance, the far left stance became 
we have to shut down until there is basically became a zero COVID stance, which seemed lunatic to me because all it seemed such a trespass of the left's own values. Everything that we, I would have considered myself of the left, I used to call myself left of left of center, everything we said we stood for, um, you know, championing the rights of lower income families, um, inclusion, diversity, all of these things. These were the people that we were harming. The schools in San Francisco, my children went to public schools in San Francisco. They're disproportionately low income. 60% of the kids are low income children. They were left home alone um, with no Wi-Fi to do their work. I mean, it was just it was so clear to me that this was so incredibly damaging and harmful. You know, I should state that in San Francisco, playgrounds, outdoor playgrounds were closed for nine months. Skate ramps, you know, like skateboarding, they were filled with sand so children couldn't go outside and skateboard. Um, basketball hoops were taken down or boarded over so kids could not play basketball. Um, they, they were told you need to just stay home. So children were totally isolated. Children were billed as just vectors of disease. They were demonized and vilified. Meanwhile, golf courses were open, tennis courts, all the things that you know wealthy, fancy adults like to do. Those were fine. Anything children um, wanted to do, beaches were closed. Uh, I went to a beach illegally, I guess, with my daughter at the time who was four and a uh, woman screamed at me that she wouldn't be sad for me when my daughter died and I was going to kill all these people in San Francisco. Um, I had the police called on me and my family because we went to the park um, and because there, I have four children, uh, the rule or the law well, it wasn't a law, it was an executive order, was you can't gather with more than one family outside your household. But because I have four children, we looked like more than one household. And so people called the police on us and we had to show our identification to prove that we all lived in one household. This is what it was like. And when you live in the city in San Francisco, nobody has a yard, nobody has anywhere to let their children play. Um, you know, if if the playgrounds are closed. And, and so it was just you were literally locked in in your home. That was not only were you locked in your home, you were told that that is what good people did. If you wanted the schools to open or you wanted the playgrounds to open, you were a terrible person who wanted teachers to die. You were a racist, which is what I was called repeatedly. Um, you were anti-science, you were all these things, you were a conspiracy theorist. So as all this was happening, I continued to be outspoken on social media, but it also, you know, I, I appeared on the local news and I wrote op-eds and I attended school board meetings. And eventually my peers at work started to notice. At first they didn't, I did not have a very large following on social media, but about six months in, I assume they noticed before that, but waited to talk to me. In September of 2020, I received a call from our my peer, the head of corporate communications, who warned me that when I spoke, I spoke on behalf of the company. At the time, I was still the chief marketing officer and that I should watch it. I should stop saying the things I was saying. I said, I don't. I'm an individual. I'm a citizen. I'm speaking on behalf of the children of San Francisco 
the 50,000 children who are locked at home, 60% of whom are low income and have no adult to tend to them while at home. Their parents are essential workers. We were divided into essential and non-essential um, as if humans can be divided in such a way. Um, so I was warned to stop. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to. And that was not well received as you might imagine. Um, I said, are you telling me I have to stop? And she said, no, I can't do that. And that was sort of the end of the conversation. That would be the first of very many, one basically every two weeks, a different call from a different executive telling me I needed to stop. My boss, who was the CEO at the time, I, he didn't speak with me for quite some time. He likes to avoid conflict. So, um, but around that same time, I should mention that the private schools, so, you know, the ones that cost $60,000 a year that all of my peers uh, sent their children to, those opened in San Francisco because they were not subjected to the same sort of state oversight and, quite frankly, interference from the teachers' unions that the public schools were. So my peers all sent, they all sent their children to private school. I was the only one um, at the executive level and even sort of multiple levels below me that sent my children to public school. They continued to tell me, you have to stop talking about this. And I would say, but your kids are in school. Why can't I have my kids in school? Well, you can't, it's dangerous. It's not the right thing to say. People don't like it. Basically, that was it. People don't like it. So then employees started to complain. There were emails that went um, to my boss, the CEO. I was accused of being a racist, um, anti-vax, a conspiracy theorist, all these crazy things. Um, and on it went. But I continued to refuse to stop because I felt that it was so important. During this time, I did get promoted. So that's a testament to the fact that I was still doing a, a good job. Somehow, some way, this view of we must stay closed until there is zero COVID, a view that honestly was only possible for the very wealthy. And I am not trying to misrepresent myself. I was an executive at Levi's. I was well paid. Um, but I felt of empathy with all of the people being harmed here. It wasn't about me and my kids per se, although my kids did go to public school and still do, but it was about all the other children that I was imagining stuck at home. All the other working class folks who I knew were being harmed through job loss, 25 million people were laid off. And 25 million people who lived paycheck to paycheck lost their jobs in the beginning of COVID. And yet somehow, we said that all of these actions, we collectively were to benefit them, which was a lie. That was false. It was not to benefit them. We've seen the largest upward transfer of wealth in the history of the world. Um, the people that benefited were not just the rich, but the very, very rich. Um, you know, the CEOs of digital companies, people like Jeff Bezos, these are the people that benefited. Everyday folks this was not in it, it, for their protection. Somehow this view became the woke view. Um, I'm not sure that's a word that translates. You can tell me if, if it makes sense, but um, it just, it became the view of the left and it became almost religious. The fervor with which this view was upheld, the, the, the woke view. And I 
I, to this day, I don't think that I understand it because again, it, it seems like such a trespass of their own values. But what I came to understand, and, and Levi's had been a very woke company. You know, they were sort of the epitome of woke capitalism. They, what had started, I would say, nobly in as early as 1853, when Levi Strauss himself, a German, Bavarian, dry goods merchant who moved to California to seek his fortune, you know, his first profits went to an orphanage. He was very much about giving back to the community. And over the course of our almost 150 years, Levi's had made it a point to kind of do the right thing and stand by their employees. They integrated factories in the South, black and white sewing machine operators worked side by side before the law required it. They gave same-sex partner benefits in 1992 before anybody ever talked about gay marriage. I was very proud of these things. I thought that, you know, they strive to give equality to all of their employees. But somewhere around 2014, 15, this whole thing became upended. And it became just the way of doing business. And they sought to take their wokeness and make that about that was what the brand was about. And I was part of it, I'll admit it. Um, but it just took over. And it was like, if you did not uphold the woke ideology, 100%, in how you spoke and presented, it didn't matter what you did, and I have an example of that, but in how you spoke and presented, then you were, you were a heretic and you needed to be banished. And here is my view on woke capitalism. It is, you guys were talking about the WEF, it's the epitome of woke capitalism. They stand there and they claim to be saving the world and all they are doing is enriching themselves. That is really what this is about. So these woke CEOs, it's not enough to be very, very rich anymore. They wanna be celebrated as philanthropic heroes. That, and so they wrap themselves in these woke causes and they serve to sort of bolster their own egos, but it's also, it serves to deflect any criticism. And I would cite Sam Bankman-Fried here as the example. For many years, the CEO founder, Boy Wonder, as he was called, of FTX, wrapped himself. He was going to save the world. He stood for environmental causes. He was putting all this money into pre-pandemic planning. He was on the cover of every magazine, and nobody interrogated the fact that he did not have basic business controls in place and that he was essentially stealing from people. We know that now, but his wokeness is what protected him um, from any sort of normal journalistic interrogation. He was not, you know, fawning puff pieces on the covers of Forbes and Fortune because he was a good person, right? That's what you're led to believe. He's a good guy, and he's even said this in DMs with a reporter. He said, we woke Westerners, we take these stances so people like us. And that is what it is at the end of the day. And they don't want to be asked hard questions. They just want you and they insist that you believe that they are in fact the epitome of you know world-saving goodness. But I will I will put this forward and ask you, you know, our CEO at Levi's in the first few months of COVID, we led by him laid off 15% of the workforce. That's close to a thousand people. These are lowered salaried people, right? These are people without a nest egg to get them through. 
of course, business was very difficult. Our stores were closed. 80% of our stores were closed around the world. Now, we said that we laid these people off with empathy, but it what it really did was bolster the stock price, right? And our CEO was able to cash out $43 million worth of stock at this during the same time period. Is that woke? I mean, come on. But because he stood up and he said, we're doing it with empathy and it's the right thing to do. Everybody nodded, including those who were fired or laid off, I should say. Everybody just accepted it, hook, line, and sinker. But what it says to me is that all of this wokeness is a pose. It's a stance that people take to avoid any scrutiny at all. And what they're really doing in the end is further enriching themselves. And so the rich or the very rich just get richer and richer and richer, and everybody else is subjugated to this lower class. And if you poke holes at that or in any way challenge it, as I was doing around this particular issue with COVID and closures, you are a risk to the, the charade. You're a risk to the charade and you must be banished. You're, you're a heretic, it's cult-like almost. And I think, um, gosh, I have a million examples of woke capitalism, but I think that one explains it, uh, explains it pretty well. And I, you know, I will say they believe it about themselves, um, I do think, you know, the leaders at WEF, they think they are these, you know, self-appointed leaders. They're trying to do an end run around democracy and appoint themselves as the leaders who know best for the rest of us. Um, and you all just have to kind of take it and like it and not drink coffee and not have a gas stove and eat bugs and, you know, do all the stuff they're telling you you have to do while they, um, you know, while they fly on their private jets and I'm sure drink coffee and all the other stuff. Um, and people, you know, we just can't stand for it. Now, I, I, I want to go back and, and talk a little bit about what happened. So from the time that I was warned, which was September of 2020, I received a call every two weeks from a different executive, head of HR. At one point, the head of HR, human resources, even said to me, Jen, I agree with you. You're right, but you cannot say it, which just set me a flame. Why? Why can't I say it if it's true and I'm right? Why? And so many people were cowed into silence. And at a certain point, you know, the dragging that I got, the name calling that I was, you know, the subject of, at a certain point, it isn't even about me and keeping me quiet anymore because it was obvious that I was not going to be quiet, but it was about everybody else. And the social censorship is very effective. Um, because who wanted to go through what I was going through, this public flogging? I was called every unemployable name in the book. Who wants to employ as their brand president a racist? Nobody. That's a terrible, terrible thing um, to be called. And it didn't matter that my two oldest children are mixed race. They're black. It doesn't matter. The facts don't matter. The arc of your life doesn't matter. They call you these names when they have no argument and you're supposed to shut up. And I refused. So I continued and I got louder. And eventually in March, I actually moved my family out of California so that my children could go to school. I moved to Colorado, which was a much more open and free state. and. When that happened, it got some national attention and I was invited to go on Fox. I don't know if you guys know what Fox News is. Um, 
wow, that really um, was sort of the the nail in my in my coffin. Having agreed to go on this show uh, with Laura Ingram, a conservative pundit and talk show host, she invited me on to tell my story. I told it. I've said nothing I would take back. I would say it again, and I would say it to her. I'm certain we don't agree on everything, but I don't see why that matters. Um, we should be able to talk to people that we disagree with. We should be able to normalize debate and dissent in this country. And the fact is that she was the first news personality in the United States as early as April 2020 that spoke out and said all of this was wrong. So to my mind, she was exactly the right person to talk to and tell my story. Well, having done that really kind of set the employees and the company on fire. Um, all of their complaints about me escalated. There were external calls to the ethics hotline. Um, I was some sort of walking, talking ethics violation. Um, emails to the CEO, to the human, to the head of human resources. Um, it went on and on. And then, this you'll love, I was told I needed to do an apology tour. So, um, in June of 2021, I see you laughing. I'm glad this is all translating. Um, and I please keep in mind, I was trying to keep my job. I am the sole breadwinner for my family. I, you know, I was willing to do a lot to try to keep my job. I was not willing to stop talking about this issue. So, and and the other thing I, at point I want to make is I kept my outspokenness to children because I thought that was a bridge that could, you know, for the real COVID enthusiasts who loved lockdowns, I thought children was an area we could kind of find some common ground on. I talked much less and I was very careful about other sorts of mandates, um, you know, vaccine mandates. Um, I commented occasionally, but my company had a, has still a vaccine mandate and I felt I should be more careful about, you know, uh, dismissing company policy, but there are no children that work at Levi's. My peers were all sending their children to school. So I felt this was maybe a safe space. I was very, very wrong about that. I also felt I can be convincing. I'll cite data. I'm nice. I'm not too aggressive. I thought, you know, they'll come around. I can, if I can just find the right way to say it. Um, but I was, I was very wrong about that. So I was told I needed to do this apology tour. It was all on zoom because you know, there was still no in-person work. Um, I was going to have to apologize for my appearance on Fox News. I was going to have to apologize for my outspokenness on schools and kids and all of this. I did agree. I did not plan to apologize, nor did I. Um, I, I agreed because, like I said, I was trying to keep my job. I, I planned to just explain myself. That's That was my plan, and that is, in fact, what I did. I was prepared up front with a list of questions. These were the questions. Are you with us or against us? Are you still on our team? Um, are you a conspiracy theorist? Like anybody says yes to that question. That's a ridiculous question. Are you aware how racist your stances are? Are you anti-vax? Is your, your husband is clearly anti-vax. What do you have to say about that? My husband, who did not hold a job, was a stay-at-home dad, was much more outspoken about the vaccine mandates and, and even the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I was continually called to task for his views. Are you a Trumper? 
like I, these questions, it's like a, it was like a purity test. I mean, honestly, um, I look now at the email and I at the time I thought, OK, I'll just answer these questions. I look back at it now and it's so insane to me that somebody wrote that down. Um, it's like, you know, I was going to re-education camp in the, you know, the CCP re-education camp or something. So that was my preparation. It was sent to me to be nice. So I was prepared. I basically stood up in front of the 200 or so employees on Zoom and I explained myself and why I took these stances. At this point, it's June 2021. Schools had been closed for a year and a half. All the wealthy kids had been in school for a year. Um, and there was no plan to open them in the fall of 2021. The, the school board and the teachers unions were still fighting it. And yet I was still considered a lunatic, essentially. I explained myself. I was asked two questions, uh, one about going on Fox. Um, the response, you know, I explained myself. I was looking for a platform. The response was really from the audience. You know, I understand why you did it, but you should not have sent it to her, said those things to her. That is, you know, you're speaking with the enemy, essentially, as if we can't speak to people that we disagree with. So that was one. And then the other question was about my husband, who was not vaccinated, still not vaccinated, and was very much against the mandate. And um, he also has a much more aggressive tone than I do. That's just his way. That's fine. He gets to do what he wants. He doesn't work there. So I was challenged on his views and his way of expressing himself. It's like a cult, right? You have to distance yourself from anyone in your family that might hold a view that is outside of COVID lockdown forever. I simply said, in response to the questions about my husband, he doesn't work here. I support his right to speech just as I support yours. Um, he gets to say what he wants. Even if he does work here, he should get to say what he wants, but he doesn't. So this is a particularly ridiculous line of questioning. <laughs> um, that was in June of 2020. Uh, by October, my boss, the CEO, you know, it had continued. I hadn't stopped. Even though schools opened in the fall, the restrictions to children were still quite onerous and we restricted children more than any other group. So, you know, two-year-olds were masked in preschool, two-year-olds, two-year-olds who wear a diaper and can't put their shoes on the right feet. Meanwhile, adults could go to bars and 60,000 people sporting events uh, with no mask and no nothing. But two-year-olds in preschool had to wear a mask all day. So I was, you know, very outspoken about that. These are young children learning to speak, learning to emotionally engage. It's undoubtedly harmful, despite what the American Academy of Pediatrics came to say. Um, so I continued out and, and the kids were just incredibly restricted. Um, parents couldn't attend sporting events in New York City to this day. An unvaccinated parent can't attend a high school basketball game, but they can go to the watch the Nets, a professional basketball team with 25,000 people in the audience, they can do that, but they can't go in a public school and watch a basketball game with 30 other parents in the crowd. I mean, it's it's insane. All of the restrictions that remain are on children, all of them. So by October, my boss um, said to me that I was a candidate for CEO. I think he was holding that out as 
bait to get me to finally stop once and for all. It's it's also worth noting, you know, the the feedback or the belief was that I was causing some reputational harm to the company. But a few things. I never identified myself in all of my news appearances, op-eds, et cetera, as an employee of Levi's, let alone an executive. I just identified myself as a mom of four. And I don't see how, because you work in a company, you give up your rights as a citizen. I mean, that's insane to think that you do, that you sign your life away in blood because you happen to have a job. And People say, well, yes, but your responsibility is different as an executive or a leader. But if somebody like me, a well-liked employee of close to 23 years, a, a beloved employee of close to 23 years, can't retain her rights as a citizen, how do they think a regular, everyday manager-level employee is going to? They're not. And I had signed no clause in any contract saying I couldn't use social media. And I had been outspoken about politics and social media in the past, but it was in line with woke ideology. And so that was fine. So it was clearly the viewpoints I was expressing and not the fact that I had an opinion about the world. The fact that this ever became political was ridiculous anyway. Anyway, so in October of 2021, my boss asked to do a background check. He said I was a candidate for CEO, which of course was true given my you know, I was the primary leader on his leadership team. But I think what he was doing was he was doing a background check, which would investigate my, you know, financial, any financial entanglements, a criminal record. Of course, I didn't have that. And um, my social media. And I think he did it so that he would have something to say, okay, now you have to go. I, I think that was really it. I think it was a sort of misdirect there. He also said he needed to do one on my husband which is bizarre. I'm pretty sure this is not standard operating procedure for anybody in line to be CEO, that they investigate your spouse as well. Um, I agreed. Again, I was trying to keep my job. It was several months um, before I heard from him. I assumed the results were, what I said to him before he did it was, this is what's gonna happen. No financial issues, You know, no crimes in my past. You will find the social media to be a gray area that you do not want to stand by me. And you will tell me it's time for me to go. That's what's going to happen. That is precisely what happened when he called me in January of 2022. Um, he never showed me the report. And honestly, when he told me that I needed to leave, I was too shaken to ask to see it. I am sort of curious. Um, but there was some sort of dossier about all of my you know, tweets and <laughs> op-eds and um, and all of the um, people that, that push back on me. I think ultimately they tired of employees complaining. I don't think it was a large group. I think it was a small, very vocal group, a very vocal and punitive minority. And these CEOs and other C-suiters, they cower. They're afraid of this small punitive minority when what they could do is stand up to them and say, look, I know some, I know this makes some of you uncomfortable, but that's okay. Let's just focus on the business. Let's stop talking about this and move on and focus on the business. That is what the CEO of Netflix did. Um, Ted Sarandos last year when there was some controversy over a Dave Chappelle special, employees protested. He said, we're going to run a lot of different kinds of content. If you don't like it, then don't work here. 
And that was the end of the conflict. But so few are showing any sort of moral courage. They're terrified of these woke employees. And so they bow to the pressure every time because they're terrified of being exposed as greedy corporatists, which is actually exactly what they are. <laughs> so um, they will oust anyone that gets in the way of that. I decided um, they offered me a million dollars in severance to walk away and stay quiet. I, which would have made my life and my family's life a lot easier, as you might imagine. Um, but I did not, it felt so antithetical to everything I'd been speaking out about because at a certain point it wasn't even just about the children who I do care, care deeply about. And to be clear, the children in the US and I'm sure around the world are not okay. Um, absenteeism is at an all time high, dropout rates, learning loss, mental health, all of it. It all came true. I was right about every single thing. Doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but it, I also became very alarmed about the censorship and the fact that we just have no ability to debate and, you know, as and dissent and have these societal conversations. And as we've seen now, it's all coming out in the press through things like the Twitter files. Doctors who held opposing views were censored and blacklisted. And the thing is, they manufactured consensus. They got to say, by they, I mean, you know, President Biden, Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, now retired. They got to say this was medical consensus because they simply ousted and silenced and banished anyone who disagreed. And they turned us all into lunatics, even doctors in good standing, world class, world famous epidemiologists like Sunetra Gupta from Oxford and Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. These people were billed as fringe lunatics, whereas they were at the top of their field before March 2020 and incredibly well regarded. So they manufactured consensus by stifling any debate and dissent. I'll say one last thing and then I'll I'll wrap up. I, I quit in a very public fashion with an op-ed in February, I think February 14th of 2022. They were not ready. I violated some code in not taking the money. They couldn't fathom such a thing that someone would do that because they all take the money. That's how it works. Um, the day after I resigned, three members of the San Francisco Board of Education were recalled by the voters by a very, very high margin. 75% of the voters that voted recalled these board members because they stood in the way of getting schools opening. Why did those people not show up when I held rallies and only 10 people came? Why? What that says to me, if 75% of the voters in San Francisco who voted recalled these board members for not getting the schools open, they agreed with me, right? but they were too afraid to say so publicly in the prior two years, but they would do it quietly and anonymously at the ballot box. But this is what the problem is because they use someone like me as an example or a doctor like Dave, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford. They, they publicly flog us and ruin our reputation, our reputations. They ruin prospects for employment in some instances, like, like in my case, and they cow everybody else into silence. And in, in doing so, it's this manufactured consensus, this, this social 
self-censorship creates a false consensus and they get to make the rest of us crazy and it's incredibly dangerous. And the only way to stop it is everybody who's sitting there quietly and afraid to stand up, they have to do it. They have to join you because we're the majority. That's the thing. And if, 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 if the majority stood up and said, well, either said, this is crazy, our children are hurting, or they said, you know what, I don't totally agree, but let's have a conversation about it. I don't agree, but I support your right to say it. If that happened in a big, broad way, none of this would have happened. You know, the schools would have opened, the kids would have gone back to school, the businesses would have opened, all of it. But because of this just vilification, demonization, and censorship, they were able to get away with it. They, leaders like Gavin Newsom, Joe Biden, all the rest of them, Fauci, they were able to get away with it and pretend the rest of us were crazy. And so my point in walking away in a very public and loud fashion, and then in writing the book, was to say, you've got to stand up. You've got to use your voice. You cannot let this happen. I know it's scary, but if we do it together, it, this won't happen again. And our freedom of speech, our civil liberties are slipping away. I cannot imagine imagine a more egregious violation of our basic civil liberties than what we've experienced in the last two and a half years. We were locked in our homes. We were told you can't go in places unless you show your papers. Um, we were not permitted to see family outside the state. We couldn't take our kids to a playground or get them an education. We couldn't visit old people in, you know, nursing homes. We couldn't visit family members in the hospital. People died alone. Women gave birth alone. We couldn't move freely. These are the most basic foundational human rights. And everyone accepted it because they were scared. And it you just you can't be scared you got to stand up and you got to use your voice this happened with a virus with a you know i don't even i can't even count the number of zeros in front of the infection fatality rate um and certainly for children even lower and so i did not sign the nda because i wanted to be able to tell the story to talk to folks like you and to encourage those who've stood silently in the background to stand up because you have to, we are going to lose the opportunity if you don't do it soon. That's the whole story. Wow, that's a very impressive report. Um, I was I was wondering um, when you were so outspoken at, at Levi's, were there any people in your team, anyone like, I mean, approaching you like, you know, in, in silence or so saying, I, I appreciate what you do? The short answer to that is no. Um, most people tried to really distance themselves from me. I became quite toxic. You know, they would pretend they didn't know what was happening. One or two. And it was very hurtful. I mean, as someone who'd been at the company close to 23 years, I had what I thought were real friends there. You know, I'd been to weddings and baby showers and funerals, all of it. And yet, you know, they knew me. They knew the arc of my life. Um, I had four children there. I, you know, I lived a whole life there. And yet, you know, the only a couple of people, there were two who approached me and said, why are you doing this? It's not worth it. And I said, it is. It is. I just I can't really think of anything more worth it. 
And if I had to give up a job that I loved, then that's, that's what it is. But no, no one did. No one was supportive. So uh, thank you very much for the <clears throat> impressive story and congratulations for not taking the money. <laughs> Respect <laughs> to this. <laughs> um, what I wanted to ask, if I uh, understood it right, the private school has been open all the time. That's right, or? Um, it, it, it closed in the very beginning. So it was closed from March 2020 to June 2020. Then summers are off, but it opened in September 2020. So it had a short period of closure and then the privates opened. Okay. And then publics would stay closed for a full year longer. Okay, and uh, beside of the official uh, reasons, what do you think what has been the reason for opening the private schools? I don't understand because it's a uh, attack for the narrative if they if they opened it there. Yeah. They there were certain places where most privates didn't open. So I think in Los Angeles, they actually didn't open. But as privately run entities, the state couldn't really, they couldn't really do anything. And the fact is, it was the teachers unions in America, or at least in the very blue left leaning cities um, that refused to go back essentially to school and private schools are not staffed by union teachers. The teachers union in America were marching with coffins. They were saying opening schools is rooted in racism and misogyny. Um, they were demonizing all of the parents like me. Um, if you showed up at a school board meeting and advocated for schools to be open, I mean, there were some parents who were then billed as terrorists by the FBI, there was a, it's like, it's, it's crazy, but the teachers unions in blue cities and states have a lot of power. They influence, there are emails that show that the head of uh, the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, had direct communication with the head of the CDC, uh, Rochelle Walensky, and influenced the opening guidelines that were issued, which ended up essentially being just a closed guidelines because the restrictions were so onerous that no school was able to meet them. So because the public schools are, you know, state run and staffed by teachers unions, they were subject to the state or city led public health guidelines, whereas the privates weren't, they operate like private businesses. And, you know, frankly, the, the private schools, if they didn't open, the parents weren't going to pay. Yeah, because right? maybe who's going to pay sixty thousand dollars a year yeah. for a closed school? Probably yeah. no one. They're going to take their money and they're going to go to another school yeah. that is open. So, you know, it is a case where you know I think capitalism it has some. There's some bad things, but in this particular instance, that competition and the need to serve the patrons of that school, they got them open. They got them open. Whereas the publics, where are you going to take your money? Where are you going to take your child? You have no choice but your local public school. I moved my family out of state um, because I had the means to do that, but obviously for far too many, they did not. So... I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, the private schools were open the majority of the time. I will also add the private schools had sports. So even after public schools opened, there were no activities, after school activities, no sports. That was too dangerous. 
I mean, <laughs> so the private school children who have means were able to play sports. They were able to get recruited for colleges and college scholarships. The public school students without means had no sports at all for two years, were unable to get recruited into colleges for scholarships. So again, to add insult to injury, the poorest children lost these opportunities to go to college, literally. Mm-hmm. Only the rich kids got recruited. Mm-hmm. How crazy is that? <laughs> so all it did was create this you know, greater division in terms of opportunity, um, you know, division between the very wealthy and those without means. And it's just made it worse and worse. And these children in public school, the learning loss, I mean, it's at a 30 year low in terms of how much learning was lost. Um, And it's worse amongst lower income students, amongst black students, it's exacerbated. And I would say the scores that are being reported are are better even than what it what they are because you have the kids who dropped out or just don't go to school not even participating in the testing so if they had it would be even worse of course and then you have the scores in for instance catholic schools which are are also private no learning loss those kids are just fine and right on track wow that's really so, crazy yeah terrible results um uh i have a so we have a question from the audience so if if what you experienced in at levi's was that this the way things were done also in other companies and if so do you think that like size influence network or industry did any of that matter or was it just all over the place i think in corporate America, there's been a, a pretty dramatic shift in the last, I would say, five to 10 years. The assumption used to be that corporate leaders were Republicans, basically, <laughs> that they were, you know, of the right. They were capitalists. They liked to make a lot of money. And that was fine. You know, greed was good. And and in the last five to 10 years, there's been a real shift. And I won't say all, but many companies um, on the coasts in particular in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, um, they take these very woke stances and left-leaning stances. And it, it accelerated in the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. Every company across America started, you know, saying we're in this fight, to, we're going to fight racism. And they were posting black squares on Instagram and making all the employees do um, anti-racism training. And meanwhile, the most structurally classist and racist thing we could do is keep the public schools closed. And yet they were silent on that matter. <laughs> and and this was a, a point of, of conflict in the company as well. Now, do they believe these stances or not? You know, these very wealthy business leaders, I don't know, it doesn't matter. It's the it's the stances that are demanded, right, by the young employees and the and the leaders take them. And so I would say in most companies across America, unless you were in Florida or Texas, um, this was the stance that was required of you. And what we see now, and most companies across America closed, you know, people worked from home virtually for over two years. They're now refusing to come back to the office. Um, which is insane. Um, and 
you know, CEOs are now sort of tired of it and demanding employees come back. It's not going very well. There's a standoff. People are not wanting to come back to the office. Um, so I would say it was not just Levi's to answer your question, but I think Levi's is sort of the pinnacle of wokeness in American companies. And so the fact that their brand president, not just a leader, but the one that's really like the face of the brand took this stance was unacceptable to them. And it didn't matter how well liked I was or how good I was. And our business was performing really well after lockdowns. None of that mattered. I was basically a traitor to the Democratic Party. Um, they wouldn't have said it that way. Although I was told, so in the fall of 21, there was a recall election for the governor of California because there were a lot of frustrated Californians who um, were unhappy with Gavin Newsom's leadership. He, he was not recalled. He won by a very large margin, but I had posted an article about the recall. I didn't even comment, but somehow posting that article was like an endorsement of recalling him. And I was told directly not to post anything about the recall of Gavin Newsom, um, which is clear political speech censorship, which is protected. Um, in the Bill of Rights, but it didn't matter. There's a close relationship between uh, the majority shareholders of Levi's, the Haas family, and Gavin Newsom himself. And I was told basically I could not criticize the governor. And now, when you so the the situation uh, today, like when you you say like like seventy five percent of these um, these people who could vote on the on the school um, uh, officials. Um, so there seems to be like a, a a giant silent crowd, basically, maybe opposed so. to the the measures and and the whole uh, Corona narrative. But um, what do you think? Uh, I mean, how do they react to these vaccine injuries? I guess that are now also surfacing in the U.S. And um, so, so, what is the the general yeah. mood or attitude right now? Yeah, I think on schools in particular. There is a general, fairly widespread agreement that it was harmful and perhaps a mistake, but nobody that also sort of generally held widespread belief. It, it was a mistake and it just happened and no one did it. No one's responsible and we shouldn't blame anyone because we need to just move on. Um, so there needs to be amnesty because, you know, it might have been a poor decision, but it was done with the goodness of you know, one's heart, none of these people should be held accountable. And at the same time, everybody's trying to pretend they had nothing to do with it. Fauci says he had nothing to do with it. Walensky, everyone says it wasn't me. Well, then who did it? I mean, somebody did it because there were certain states like Florida that opened the schools because the governor there demanded that they open. So, you know, there's some progress in that people think it was bad, but there is no accountability. And without accountability, in my mind, Those people should not have their jobs, the people that made these terrible, terrible decisions, because they will do it again. Um, and so, but there's a real reluctance to sort of hold anyone accountable. That's on schools. I think on lockdowns, the general feeling is, I think leaders are afraid to ever do them again. I think that they would face widespread pushback, but there is a strong feeling in this country from the left that the only reason, you know, COVID spread is because dissenters, horrible people like me 
uh, wouldn't follow the rules of lockdown. And if we just stayed home forever and were sealed in our homes like they did in China, obviously it would have worked, which is obviously ridiculous and not, not true. They sealed people in their homes for two years in China. They let them burn in fires and still COVID spread. Vaccines are the untouchable. Even people who are anti-lockdown and anti-school closure, they will not, for the most part, touch the vaccine. It is an article of faith that vaccines work, that these vaccines are a miracle. And you make yourself, even me, already toxic, you make yourself even more toxic if you dare question um, the efficacy, let alone ponder the danger and harms being done. So it is unacceptable to question vaccines. It is somewhat acceptable to question mandates, vaccine mandates, um, which are clearly a, a challenge to bodily autonomy and I believe are wrong, even if it works, even if it works to discriminate against a class of people based on what medicine they take or choose not to take is grotesque. Um, but in this particular case, where they do not prevent infection or transmission, it's particularly egregious to then separate the unvaccinated as an unworthy class of people. And that is exactly what happened. Um, doctors refused to treat unvaccinated patients. Um, but this idea, this, you know, you can't question uh, the safety. And that's really kind of put me in hot water all over again, because now I'm freer to speak about everything. And it seems so patently clear to me that we have been lied to repeatedly. Um, I don't understand even people that still sort of champion the vaccine. I'm not talking about doctors, but like regular people like me who still sort of hail it as a miracle. I don't understand, like we were lied to about everything. They said it prevented transmission and infection. It didn't. They, it's clear at this point, they knew they never tested for that, but they said it anyway. They, they, there were all these lies. They, they, they said there were no harmful side effects. We know now myocarditis and stroke are absolutely side effects. We don't know the degree, but we're all seeing these athletes around the world heal over. Um, and yet, if you question and challenge that is that is the off limits thing. You cannot do that. You are villainous if you do that. And I got one more question also. Um, you gave a good explanation for the reasons, uh, um, referring to the reasons uh, for the reopening of the private school. It's the money. It's almost always the money. <laughs> so it's very clear. I think that's right. So what I don't understand, um, you um, spoke about the woke capitalism. So, uh, if I understood it right, the wokeness is a kind of attitude uh, in first line. So, uh, at least in the USA, I think there were a lot of Trumpers, how you call it, or <laughs> or Levi's call it, and I think they were not so woke. So, if uh, I would be a CEO of Levi's or another company, I want to to sell a lot of stuff. The, as, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. So why is so, yeah, why are not, they are not neutral? Yeah. I can say we're yeah, not interested great, in wokeness. It's, it, it doesn't it's matter great, for Levi's, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And for a brand like Levi's, which I'm sure you all know well, we have a, Levi's has a great business in, in Germany. Um, it is a very, like everyone wears Levi's. I mean, it's the cowboy brand. It's a red state brand. It's a flyover state brand. Like it's, there are certain brands that are very coastal. 
you know, that is not Levi's. Really, it's literally worn by everyone. So your question is a good one. Aren't they sacrificing business um, by taking these stances? I, I have a sort of two-part answer. One, they're so isolated in their bubble, they don't really understand that. They think everybody agrees with them, and the only people that don't are these fringe lunatics. That's kind of what they think. Like, they don't know people that disagree with them. They don't know people in, you know, red states who believe this stuff. They, it, in San Francisco, I think 96% of voters are registered Democrats. Like they just don't know these other people. They don't know people who think differently than them. They don't have conversations. They clearly think if you have a conversation with someone that thinks differently than you, you're evil, right? That's what they think. So they're isolated from it. And so they think, they sort of think those people don't exist in a weird way. And they have their kids who are woke, who went to woke private schools telling them this is what you have to do. And they want their kids to really like them. I mean, it's all so stupid, right? <laughs> um, so that's, um, I, I, I think that's part of it. They don't really know them. They're also courting, at least for Levi's, which is a fashion company, they're courting the young. Young people buy more, they spend more on apparel. You know, old people like me, we stop buying so many clothes at a certain point. And so they just see younger people as a bigger financial opportunity, which is true. They do buy and spend more and they have longer years of purchasing ahead of them. And so, they just feel they need to kowtow to this younger cohort who by and large is more woke, not exclusively, but more. That's a lot of it. And then the other piece is the Trumpers or the red staters or whatever, you know, a lot of people threaten and they get really angry that you take these stances, but at the end of the day, they still buy the stuff. So it doesn't end up really even having that dramatic of an impact. You know, look at the controversy with Disney. If you're a parent of young children, even if you're mad at their policies, you kind of want to go to Disney World and watch Disney movies. And so they don't end up really boycotting or, you know, it just doesn't really end up manifesting as any with any impact. And it's true on the other side, too. There's a shoe brand called New Balance. I'm sure you have it there. Um, when Trump was elected, their CEO and their head of comms, you know, they said something like they were glad about Trump being in office because of his, you know, manufacturing at home policies. They were made in the USA brand. And all these liberals started burning their New Balance shoes in protest. But that same year, they the company grew 8%. So, and it's kind of a hipster coastal brand. So it's a big show. Everybody just buys the stuff they like anyway which I'm not saying is bad. I mean, buy the stuff you like. But if you want it to have an impact on the company's policies, you actually have to follow through because they will listen to the bottom line, to your to your point. So in the end, it's both. They want to make profit, but also they believe a little bit in this wokeness scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that's a, it's a little bit of both, right? Like they, at the end of the day, business the same as it ever was. It's about making money. That's the fiduciary responsibility. They want to make money, but they want to be beloved for being, you know, philanthropists and altruists. And they mostly think they are. They believe their own line of bullshit, as I like to say. And yet they know somewhere deep down a little bit of a lie. And so anyone who risks exposing that needs to be shunted.
I think it's a little bit similar to the Queen Party here, uh, because they are believing what they are doing. This bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for explanation. Yeah. So is there yeah. uh, is there a way out? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, I think the way out is, you know, you know, the way I, I see it is there's, you know, a fairly small percentage of people who are willing to kind of stand up and say the thing and call a lie a lie. And it, it's in all sorts of areas, not just COVID, you know, that's where I ran into it, but I won't get into some of the other controversial categories, but there are plenty where we're asked to believe a lie is true and to further that lie. 10 or 20% of us are willing to stand up and say, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not upholding that lie. I'm not going to get boosted 77 times when I see what's happening. Like there's a small percentage of us. There's another group let's call it, you know, 40% in the middle. I'm making up the percentages that are, they see it, but they're afraid and they're quiet. And then there's the true believers who just, they believe all the bullshit, right? It's the 40% or the 30% or whatever that silent minority is. We need them to stand up and speak up. And it can happen. It can happen. If I go back to the, the gymnastic story that I told, again, I was alone in the beginning and standing up. These women all knew it. They knew what happened to them. They knew they were emotionally, physically, and uh, sexually abused in the sport, but they were told this is what it takes. And if you don't, if you're not willing to endure it, then you're weak and you're bad and you can't violate this sort of code where we, you know, all stay quiet. But over time, over the course of a decade, first I came forward, then another woman came forward. It, courage begets courage. And all those other athletes, not just in America, but around the world, including in Germany, came forward and demanded change and demanded change from the governing bodies in their sports. Those are the people we need to kind of come out of their shell and from, you know, out from behind their, their silence, because that creates a majority. So that's, that's the only way out that I see. I think there are a lot of people in companies across America who were like, this woke stuff is bullshit. Like, I really honestly think, but they're so, I mean, I know they're so afraid to say anything. They're so afraid to say the wrong thing. Um, but if they did, if they just said, why are we doing this? Like, you don't even have to, you know, I tell people all the time, you don't have to blow your whole life up like I did, which I really did. I mean, I live in a different city. I don't have a job. I don't have any of my friends from the past. But just ask a question. Just say one thing. You know, to the parents in New York City who can't attend a basketball game for their child, don't accept that silently. Call the school and say, why can't I come? I want to come and see my kid. Because if you are silent, they think everybody agrees, and it really is the consent of the government. And so I tell everyone, just challenge every day in your life, in your own way. If your school is, there are schools in America who do parent-teacher meetings, conferences, virtually still. They won't do them in person. It's, they say it's too dangerous. That's unacceptable. We're three years in this. Tell the school you don't accept it. I mean, I'm just giving a couple examples, but imagine if everyone asked those questions. They they wouldn't be able to get away with this anymore. 
And so that's my hope is that enough people start to push back and challenge and ask questions. You know, I think it's, also, I don't know what else. Yeah. I, I think it's really also a question of like a turn of the tide, you know, like when you think about this me too, um, uh, you know, campaign, or exactly. whatever, you know, then it's all of a sudden it becomes hip to be um, on the other side. And then it's it's That's like right. a, a a dam break or whatever you know like it's you can't that, you just can't yes. do anything anymore and then you know that's I think why we always also see this Klaus Schwab guy talking about um, you know this uh, that they're in the middle of a storm kind of you know there's so much like um, I don't know a storm pushing against them and um, so I think that's also the way we have to really take it you know it has to be I think also become maybe hip to say. I'm so sorry, I did something wrong. I vaccinated like a lot of people and I thought I was doing the right thing, but in fact, I didn't do the right thing. And now I realize it and I would like to speak out, you know, about it because it's it's almost like uh, what you what you call this in English when you go to church and you confess, you know, your sins. Yeah. I think that should be like something that, that people should do publicly. And then it maybe becomes also yeah. a... Yeah, I mean, I think the only way that happens is like, it happens slowly and then all at once, as you described, like enough people get sick of it and fed up and they see and it's a drip, drip, drip. And then all of a sudden it becomes the cool thing, right? To stand on principle and to say, this is wrong. Everything was wrong. We shouldn't have closed the schools. We shouldn't have locked down. We shouldn't have mass vaccinated. It's causing harm. But I think we're a ways from that. But that's why I say just like one person at a time you stand up and suddenly that becomes the majority. And you're completely right about me too. It was unacceptable to speak on it. And then all of a sudden it was like, if you didn't um, challenge and take the side of women and you didn't do these things, that was the bad way to be. And honestly, the situation I described in gymnastics was happening at the same time as me too. That is why people listen to these young women, even though they'd been speaking out some of them for 20 years, it was pre me too. Then suddenly you had to listen to all women, believe all women, and that became problematic in its own right, but we don't need to talk about it. Um, but yes, you need to get that critical mass, but critical mass happens one person at a time. And I think eventually you described it well, the dam breaks, and it becomes the only acceptable position. And we're a long way from that. Who knows? I mean, it can. You're right. We don't know how many, uh, you know, drops were already like uh, kind of moving in that direction. And maybe it's just a few more people we have to convince and then, and then it, boom, you know, who knows? No, we don't I, know. We don't know. I think, I think that's, that's correct. We have no idea. Um, and I, you know, as I was being outspoken, that was my belief, you know, cause I'd lived through it in gymnastics. Like I went first and everybody hated me, but then eventually they didn't. And they were like, Oh, you're a hero. We always stood with you. I was like, no, you don't. Yeah, I remember, but that's fine. Welcome to the fight. It took 10 years, um, but I had that in my mind and I thought, well, I can be part of changing the hearts and minds if I just say it in the right way and I just do it calmly and with data. But I, it didn't get here fast enough for me. Obviously I lost my job, but now I'm free to say everything. So, you know, that's why I, I did what I did. But you're right. You never know how far. You could be very, very far or we could be inching close to it. But in the U.S., the vaccines in particular are still a quite untouchable thing. Even 
for those who are like in my cohort who were anti-lockdown and all of this from the beginning, they still are quite worshipful of the vaccine. Yeah, but I mean, you know, that's also changing. We uh, produced a film kind of, it was one of the first ones coming out where it, said, where it says, um, you know, um, uh, I've been vaccinated and now I'm talking. You know, and you saw in that movie, um, and a lot of the people even, you know, still were, were wearing masks and then confessing, I mean, not confessing, but like admitting that they've been hurt uh, by the vaccines, you know, and that also the, the, the situation they're now in uh, looking for help from the doctors is very unfortunate yeah. because they are being made fun of or like, uh, you know, know, like... Um, told that they have like psychological issues or whatever and but then all of a sudden you know more and more films popped up and now we have it's it's quite quite a few uh self-help groups like physically like meeting yeah. in a in a town are popping yeah. up so i think it's becoming also more and more um to know that people are at least behind uh closed doors that uh, um you know also saying oh it's kind of weird you know like it's it's uh, it's another funeral and this guy was really healthy and now we have another Another, you know, one of these coincidental deaths and so on. Yeah. So I think that's becoming also more and more. That's maybe also going to happen in the US, although on the surface, you know, it's still showing this. Uh, yeah, it was the greatest it's, thing ever. Yeah, they're still trying really hard to silence. I mean, it's so sad. There's a there's a film here in the US called Anecdotals, which is a, a story about which I highly recommend. You can find it on YouTube. It doesn't even have a COVID warning on it anymore, though it was taken down by YouTube the day that it, it launched. Um, there was sort of a campaign to get it back, and it's people telling their stories of vaccine injury. Um, but, you know, some of the stories they tell are as they started self-help groups or communities if in their community, Facebook would take down their, like they're, they're not even permitted to, it, and the craziest part is they're considered anti-vaxxers, but the reason they're injured is they got vaccinated. So they went and like, it's like, it's so crazy or they're considered anti-vaxxers and some of these people, they put their children in trial. Like you can't really be more enthusiastic about a vaccine than to put your own child in a trial. And now they're told, to your point, they're, they have mental issues or whatever, or that it's a lie, it's not true. And of course, the pharmaceutical companies are protected from liability, and these people are really suffering. Um, but I think at this point, I think you're right, there, there are sadly going to be so many of them that there's not really going to be a way to ignore it any longer. Though I do think, again, in the U.S., we're, we're quite far from that. The the demonization campaigns are generally effective here so far. Well, <clears throat> you know, thanks so much for sharing, at, I mean, really like three stories with us, you know, so it's it, it, very impressive. I think it's 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 great that you have, uh, you know, such a strong back, basically, you know, like or that you are just not um, <laughs> standing by your convictions, basically. I think it's very good. Yeah, maybe because of that. Yeah, and I think it's great. And also, that's basically a, a story of hope. Also, what you, um, you know, told us about your, the future endeavor with the gymnastics. So, you know, there's, there's. Um... That's yeah. I mean, I know that's why I, I started with that because you know I know it's off topic, but it's, it is a, a sort of glimmer of hope. Like the whole world can change overnight. To your point, like if you. If you are staunch and steadfast and clear, you can bring people around. You know, one person really can inspire others. And so 
it's really just a, a sort of urging to those who are silent to join join us and and speak the truth that you see with your own eyes don't let them tell you a lie is true and everyone you can't everyone can do this yeah you have to not to be a famous person or something like this or a gymnastic star everyone can do this yeah every day everyone yeah. everyone can do it everyone has to do it and you can do it in your everyday life that's well, it huh? thanks so much fantastic thank you very much keep up, thank up you. the good work and thank I, you for having me best for you good luck i think the grass Bye -bye. the thank grass you. is so much greener on the side of truth so you. That is a good way to put it. I like that. I might steal that. <laughs> Very true. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank, you, Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You, you too. too. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that's why um, Jennifer says she used to, up to recently, be marketing officer at Levi's, and then she had to give up her position because she positioned herself against the closing of public schools and uh, this is just one thing uh, I, I said that you know there's all kind of things that you can do and and, and, and what she did uh, was open your mouth that, that makes sense but it's even easier than that because uh, there is um, a poem by Wolfgang Borchardt he died very very young he died shortly after the war and he says and there's a poem is called say no say no because you see uh, the, the next round of people is at the starting blocks already who knows what they are going to say and uh, i've been in many countries in the east of europe and the further east you go the more people say no and then you don't need to write any letters to the prosecution office you just they just simply didn't put on the mask or took it off and so I just say say no say no oh be great I like that all right our final guest for today professor Ulrike Kemmerer Ulrike are you there yes can you hear me well, um, I don't know how, what time is. Oh, yeah, we really are over time. So sorry, but it was so intense so far. But I hope you've been listening in. I mean, this lady was great, wasn't she? Jennifer, what a courageous lady. Fantastic. Yes, you are going to give us a bit of a review as to all the things that happened. Maybe something about you, so you're in uh, human human biologist, immunologist, and settler biologist, and uh, you um, were then in the court proceedings against soldiers who <coughs> didn't want to get vaccinated, and you talked about the bio-weapon quality of the COVID-19 injections on the basis of the modified RNA technology, and you looked at how it all started, and I think that uh, something that turned out to be quite a bit of baloney from what people thought of at the beginning, the narrative what you heard at the beginning turned out to be wrong. So you got the floor. Yeah, well, let me start a wide array with my presentation and I'll try to keep it brief. 
So I hope you can see it. And today we are on 20th of January. So precisely three years ago in Bavaria, we uh, started the German history of Corona. And I thought that would be a good uh, point in time to recall this. It's been three very intensive years. And yet yesterday I got a picture um, of, from our beloved uh, health minister who's very present on Twitter. And he said in Bavaria, it can happen that an infected, asymptomatic doctor, that's the beginning of the lies, may infect many old or chronically e uh, sick patients because they don't wear a mask. So if I was a doctor in a practice, I would say that is quite a cheek uh, to say this, that doctors who work with patients every day, they very well know how to behave in front of patients uh, opposed to him. So this is again a story, the infected asymptomatic doctor. So I think it is uh, a bit of a hilarious story if we recall how it all started. Let me just briefly see if I can open my other presentation. Here we are. The story of the asymptomatic uh, transmission. I have taken it here from a Morgenpost, a German newspaper, who described this. And uh, we can provide these charts, how it all started. And in the end, three major points have to be addressed here, which uh, went through the whole story. So it was today. Uh, a year ago, it started on the 16th of January with a Chinese employee of a Bavarian um, car manufacturer supplier was visited by her parents from Wuhan and then traveled to Germany to um, participate in business meetings and trainings and so on. And this is something that um, we see is the story that we see in the public media again and again. Later, she said that at the trainings, she felt well. On Monday morning on 20th of January, exactly three years ago, today, three years and half a day, or a whole day rather, um, she met a 33-year-old German, the so later patient number one. When she flew back on the 23rd, uh, she was supposed to, um, said to have felt worse. She was tested at home. And one week on the 27th uh, of January after that um, meeting, where patient number one was created, she informed uh, the uh, management of the respective company. And then the company um, informed this business partner of this Chinese and this patient zero, 
uh, was told by his senior that he would have had this killer virus and here the fear starts. I thought about my family first of all and the weekend I had uh, fever and uh, I was cold. Uh, I had no breath problems, but I was concerned about by my children and my wife, and I knew I had to be tested. This is how it all started. Otherwise, um, he, if we just heard he's got a little flu, and that would have been it. However, what, how does the story go on, which was then uh, reviewed scientifically by the people who were involved in therapy and diagnostics of this uh, poor uh, sick person in that company. Well, it's important that later, she said, she felt well during the training. And one important publication, Burma et al. Infectious Diseases was the first publication where this outbreak was addressed and looked at the infection chain. And I highlighted a couple of important co-authors, Coleman, Drosten and Werther. Coleman and Drosten are known by the PCR, Drosten PCR, Coleman, Drosten PCR and Mr. Werther will play a role later on. So uh, what's that uh, publication look like here? Both parents had cold-like symptoms the week before, and one parent showed uh, fatigue and loss of appetite um, while she visited her daughter, or her, him, her, who went to Germany later on. And then the story is she hadn't, didn't have anything. This is the story of the asymptomatic transmission. And here we have the 20th January, exactly three years ago, where she had chest and backache, which reported as unusual and official publication, Lancet, infectious disease, she took paracetamol. You don't do that if you don't have anything. And she, in Germany, she reported that she felt fatigue. <coughs> she thought it was a jet lag, jet lag but uh, definitely she had symptoms and she was not fully healthy. Another publication, and here I can differentiate between the printed article and the online version, which is different. <coughs> the printed article in the New English Journal of Medicine, <coughs> it says that the Chinese had no symptoms and only got sick on the way back. Now, one thing is important, see supplementary appendix. That means uh, there is a supplementary saying that now in science um, you can put lots of data in the online archives which you don't put into the published in the printed version <coughs> and this is something that nobody normally reads um, but uh, often it is hard to find them. And here the authors, Mr. Drosten, Mr. Wölfe, Drosten from the Charité, and Wölfe is the head of the Bundeswehr Institute of Microbiology in Munich, in Germany. So in the printed version, it says, so far none of the four confirmed patients show signs of severe 
clinical illness. And that is something that is seen throughout the chain of infection in Germany and in all of Europe, basically at Vibasto. And, and then it says in the article at the very end, the fact that asymptomatic persons are potential sources of 2019 N-Cough infection. <coughs> that was the old name. So this is the basis that the Chinese lady was asymptomatic. In other words, basically was fine, but that she in fact brought the virus to Sebasto. And if you look at the supplement, so this additional material that you can only see online, it says they were doing this to explain, to clarify whether the index patient had been correctly described as asymptomatic. A group of the authors spoke with her by phone on February 5. What follows is her description of the way her symptoms developed. So, and then we have this here, Monday, January 20th, the day that she arrived at Vibasto at this meeting. It says, at midnight she woke up, felt a little bit warm, but not in a febrile way, took one pill of a Chinese off-the-counter uh, a Chinese um, OTC drug called 999, which is basically something like a paracetamol. And then she had minor pain the next day in some muscles and in the bones of her chest. So she felt slightly hot and had felt muscular pain and felt odd. That is something that I wouldn't call asymptomatic. I would say, well, it uh, seems that something is happening here. And on January 22, she had meetings all day, and she mentioned that she had felt slightly cold in the morning. So when you are about to have a cold, then this goes back and forth between feeling hot or feeling cold. So, she was not free of uh, any symptoms, on the contrary. So, what occurred then? So, she felt chest pain and back aches, which she reported to be unusual. And then, when she got home, she had a fever running at 38.6. So, this is uh, something that she probably caught at her parents. So, there you see the nice chain of infection. And then on the way back, she caught it full blast. And this is important because here you can see very nicely why there has actually been or has there been an asymptomatic infection, has it been possible? It says here that all cases except for Fraction 15 were symptomatic, even if the symptoms were not mostly mild. However, no transmission was documented from asymptomatic patient 15 to the patient's contacts until the end of the observation period. 
meaning those that did pass it on to others had symptoms. So, it could be uh, transmitted prior to symptoms and uh, still poses this challenge on the implementation of public health measures. So where it says asymptomatic, it always says no, 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 unknown, not applicable, um, no, 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 no. There's not a single one who said yes, but still they say it could be, and you're always talking the same authors in these publications. What did he say himself? He said, well, the, the media, they made a big thing out of it. Uh, they were trying to um, find out what they what they uh, had, and then you know they invented conversation between myself and my wife. So fake news started at an early stage. So in an interview with Bavarian Radio, he said, "Of course, it's a new virus, but it's not as bad as a, as a flu." And that was all of the patients from Zivasto. So they, you know, had a bit of a cough, um, sore throat, but it wasn't really much more than a light flu. And in Bavarian radio, they had the first press conference and then a task force, so they blew it up immediately. And at the time she was in Bavaria, the lady herself didn't have any symptoms. Like I said, I just showed you the two symptoms, but apparently that she did have symptoms. And then what did Mr. Spahn say? He says that clinics should uh, report any um, suspicions of cases of coronavirus to the Robert Koch Institute, um, not only the confirmed cases. But then he also said there is no reason to be afraid. And when you read that, then of course you get afraid immediately. And these people were all treated at the same clinic in the Schwabing Hospital in Munich. And there they had these uh, patient bulletins where they wrote about how these patients were doing. On the 31st, on the 30th of January, four patients with coronavirus and clinically good condition, no symptoms and clinically well. That's good news. But three days later, six patients uh, had symptoms similar to a flu and at the moment are mostly without any symptoms. And then they talked about a testing procedure. So, Clinically, they didn't have anything but they had positive tests. And the clinics pointed out, if you have a high fever, you probably have a normal cold or a flu. Please, these people should not go to the hospital. They could have stopped right there. But then on the 4th of uh, February, they had seven patients 
uh, always the same, uh, slightly elevated temperature, but mostly without any symptoms. One patient had a bit more something in his lung, but it was nothing critical. On the 7th of February, it was already 11 cases uh, in Bavaria, 13 in Germany. And most patients showed light flu-like symptoms, and most of them by now are without any symptoms. But in the test, they were positive. So they were then in lockdown, these patients, even though they didn't have any, any symptoms. Because and then after 16 days, the first one was released from hospital because he fulfilled the criteria, amongst them various negative tests. And it says patients are stable and do not show any symptoms. And in between there was one report, it was not about how the patients were faring, but about the understanding as to how the virus is transmitted, and that's where the charity comes into play. Um, Mr. Drosten and Mr. Wölfel from the Army uh, Institute for Microbiology, and they uh, started with cell cultures, what you normally do in virology. And here it says again, the symptoms look very much like a harmless cold. And they always explained what it is. It is a cold that they have. And the symptoms are sore throat, signs of sinusitis infection, and uh, a slight feeling of um, being sick without any fever, just like that uh, Chinese lady. And here, the four most important protagonists for forensic reasons, I'm showing the pictures here. Mr. Kosten, everybody knows, this is Mr. Wölfe, Professor Wölfe, you know him too. And Mr. Wendner, he is the boss of the Schwabing Clinic, the hospital where they were all treated. And the fourth one here, this picture I took because this is from February 3, 19. And there was this activity called uh, Get Vaccinated. Because, uh, and it says there, I will get myself vaccinated and facts speak louder than fake news. So this uh, actually happened one year prior to SARS-CoV-2. So these are the four gentle persons, and three of them, Werfel, Kerman, Drosten, and Wendler, and all four of them were on the fourth article, the virological assessment of hospitalized patients. And I have a few statements from their study, uh, because they basically showed the way at an early stage, and it says there, amongst other things, that a cross-reactivity or cross-stimulation against the four endemic human coronaviruses in several patients is indicated. I'll show that in detail in a minute. And we sequenced full virus genomes from all patients. And in the sequenciation, they noticed this furin-type cleavage site at the S1, S2 junction. And gain of fusion activity was shown. 
sounds a lot like gain of function and, and then they also show that there is an increased viral entry in tissues with the low densities of ACE2 expression and then about the publication all the tests that weren't good for anything samples that contained less than 10 to the power of six copies per ml or copies per sample never yielded an isolate which is considered to be the border of infection. <clears throat> so all of them had RT-PCR and for some reason, like I said, this is at the beginning of 2020, it says vaccine responses. So in any case, vaccine approaches targeting mainly the induction of antibody response should be aim, should aim to induce particularly strong antibody responses. And there was a publication in the summer where Korman and Drosten are included. And they said, we detected spike reactive CD4 positive T cells, not only in 83% of patients with COVID-19, but also in 35% of healthy donors. And that's from the time of before 19. They already had an immunity against this virus because of a cross activity. And uh, some of them say that it goes up to 50%. So when they say that one third is immune anyhow, then that would have been important to point out. And they all sequenced. Normally, when you have a sequence, you then check it against the other data banks, databases. And then there was this um, paper that was pulled immediately because they said there is an uncanny similarity of unique inserts in the 219-NCOV spike protein and gag. And some uh, institute, uh, at the Institute of Microbiology at the, Fed, at the Army, uh, it was pretty obvious that something, somebody uh, had been doing some handicraft work on the virus. And, and this here says in the supplement, this was uh, Corman and Drosten, and Mr. Olaf Lang was involved in there too. They were doing the diagnosis. And this is how it all started. Everything else is well documented. So I, I wonder, and I, I, I ask myself the same question, what would have happened if the authors at that time of those three publications, especially the four main protagonists of the early stages, would have said that the index patient from China was not completely without symptoms, so she was not really asymptomatic, and had even taken paracetamol in order to suppress her problems, that uh, everybody that was supposed to be infected by her only had flu-like symptoms, like a bit of a cold. And it was of obviously not that um, uh, they uh, had immediately the pest and the epidemic at the company, even though they had a lot of parties at the company at the time. And if the sequencing were correct uh, with the data 
um, other data pages, uh, that should have shown um, the outliers with the spike protein. And uh, this was always, this clone spike was always the basis for the so-called vaccines. Why didn't nobody, why didn't anybody say that they shouldn't have done that? That they should have informed us at an early stage. They should have said that. And I said that already. It would have been good if they could have um, said that 35% in other publications, up to 50% of the people have a cellular pre-immunity against the SARS-CoV-2 because of the cross-reaction with earlier um, cold coronaviruses. They're so close to each other, um, apart from the handmade spike. I mean, the body of the virus is basically the same that, uh, because of cross-reaction, uh, could have been spotted. So these are questions that one could ask. And maybe these four people will have to give, provide answers at one point. Well, this is what I wanted to share with you at this point of time. Thank you. Uh, just tell me, this Chinese lady, how uh, come that she was picked out with these little symptoms or that she spoke out to, to whomever she spoke out? Well, her parents were from Wuhan and she got sick and in China it had proceeded further, all this corona symptomatics and probably when she came back she was picked out because she was uh, had fiber and the first patient uh, uh, from Averbasto knew that he had to get himself tested and she did as well, so she ran to get the test and she was positive. So it was it was during the the flight, <clears throat> and uh, well, she was um, alarmed by the pre-story in uh, China. Well, and then she got sick a bit, and she thought this is the only virus that could make you sick. And she got the test, and the test was positive, and that matches nicely with the story, with her story, with the story of her uh, parents. And then she reported it as was required, so and that got the ball running. Yeah, hi, okay. I have a question for you. The SARS viruses have been known for some 15 years, uh, known to be on the move in Europe, because SARS viruses, and, and they were probably then uh, transmitted all over the world with the airplane traffic. And if you look at it, it's uh, it's always Wuhan, that's the origin of everything, which of course doesn't make any sense, because sure, even before Wuhan there were coronaviruses. I mean, where are uh, the roots of these? And the Robert Koch Institute uh, carried out the monitoring, and then they asked the doctors to send in samples, and then the PCR that they themselves did, and that was that were better than what uh, we then saw afterwards, and they tried to differentiate what kind of um, agents these were. And then in 2020, long after the story, 
they started looking for coronaviruses. They never did that before. And uh, Robert Koch didn't pay them, so the doctors weren't looking for them. It's a bit strange because, you know, if I am an official doctor working for the government, and I used to be one, and I look at that and I have to see how do I uh, protect my population, I, I ask one question, are more people now sick than um, before? I wouldn't look at cleavage spots that, of course, you can always find how they got there, I don't know, but I would see did people get sick or not? And at Robert Koch or with myself, I would have said, no, it's just like always. And then I would have wondered, I would have said, I'm sorry, I need to have a more official sign to see that this is something terrible, not some theater that is happening in China. Um, and that's something I simply cannot understand with all of these well-trained hygienists and epidemiologists and virologists. I mean, that's such a cheap, cheap story that they're trying to tell us. Obviously wrong. Only Mr. Drosten with his nice smile, Mr. and, you know, with the... He was the fairy tale storyteller uh, for all of Germany. You know, I know how to deal with con men and I, I am I am somebody who is privileged. I, I have dealt with imposters before and I know it was obvious this guy was a fishy, shifty character. And with a guy like him, he said he didn't have any financial interest and he became famous and he was a hero. And all the women fell in love with him. And this is something that, that this really works like that, that the show went on like that without the experts. You know, they have their committees, the hygienists, the virologists, and so on. And there is a pathologist in Hamburg, just have to check up. It's one thing that happened. I mean, you know, the the uh, associations, they all uh, swallowed it, they believed in it, and the media praised them. That's such an absurd story. Now, it was almost three years uh, after, it gets even more absurd. Yeah, really. Even when you look at the initial reports, you know, I, I, I read that, I thought, what the hell is going on? What are they talking about? They all said they're doing fine, they don't have anything, a bit of a flu. <laughs> and I thought, what is going on? They don't have any problem. Well, like I said, in February, I started getting interested in that. And then in the mid of February, I wrote my first report. And, uh, and basically, in essence, I said, what the hell is going on? And I said, all you do is you find the positive tests. And then when I saw, you know, these people with their disinfection machines walking the streets of Wuhan, I thought, what is going on? It was such a ridiculous show, it had nothing to do with hygiene. You can't disinfect a road that is so ridiculous. Everybody knows that. You cannot disinfect the road. Not uh, you can't 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 uh, disinfect the, the air. Baloney. No hygienist would have come up with that. But everybody in Germany took it seriously. And all of these experts. I mean, that is just simply embarrassing. 
You should be ashamed of yourselves, you people. Yeah, you know, you asked me about the viruses. I, I found one chart. Look, I'm going to I'm going to show you that one because this is really actually something that's going to make you laugh. You see that one? Can you see it? This is from a science publication, and this is where they where they it's a laudatio for Mr. Mr. Drosten. So how pandemic made virologists unlikely cult figure, and there you have his um, biography. And there is the timeline 66, the first endemic cold virus was discovered or identified. And 67, it was OC43. And then in 68, they came up with the name coronavirus because it had um, this wreath around it, it looks a bit like a crown. And then <clears throat> there was some time there was nothing, and then they established the so-called family of coronaviruses. 2002, you had the SARS outbreak in China, and in SARS uh, 2003, what? Uh, and just at the same time when he developed his first test for SARS. Yeah, I was in contact with the Chinese embassy back then. I was at the Chinese embassy in Berlin, and they looked for all kinds of germs, bacteria and viruses, and it was a very limited uh, outbreak. And then, uh, supposedly in Canada or in the US, in the West, uh, they had another outbreak at some old age home. And it looked uh, like it was an outbreak of some other coronavirus. It was this one here, yeah, that's right. But it produced a number of deaths as well. Yeah, there was nothing amongst the staff in that old age home. But, uh, you know, of these old people, some died, like it's common in the flu. Yes, and that's well published, published and covers. And it shows here that these cold coronaviruses um, lead to deaths, that's uh, quite clear. <clears throat> We've had this 2004, 2005, uh, may have been HKU1, I don't know, um, in this care home. Quite a few people were associated as deaths with this. It had different causes as well. And then <clears throat> 2012, we had the MERS, uh, which was discovered, and um, um, Drosten cooperated with Marian Kopmans, um, shows that camels carry that. She's one of the co-authors of his paper. And later on, in a Dutch published uh, uh, podcast, she said that PCR test can't prove what it pretends to prove. And then 2019, COVID pandemic begins in China. And then 2020, SARS-CoV-2 was discovered and Drosten, so that's his timeline, the blue one, develops his first test. Uh, so it's a very funny thing to see. I think it's interesting, this big gap here, starting to study medicine and the first SARS test. Well, before that, apparently he worked at the Red Cross uh, Blood Donation Center. And he looked at the blood, and then he was uh, at the Bernard Nocht Institute for some time. 
and he did something there. I think he always done the same. He uh, developed his molecular tests and worked on the differentiations of them. But basically, that's it. Well, I just wanted to say coronaviruses are everywhere. Uh, if we had looked earlier, we would have found them. <clears throat> and uh, it's a new type every now and again. And if you would systematically check everybody who's sick, you would find lots of interesting viruses, new ones as well. And uh, you wouldn't do too much about it uh, because neither you would have the respective test nor the vaccination. And uh, we've had this business model of Moderna, who was interviewed three years ago in Davos, when he said that he's in the development of the vaccine already early January 2020. <clears throat> yeah, they tried to churn out uh, some vaccines uh, yes, for others. And that was explicitly for the new virus. With, really? Yes, with oh, mRNA. That's the new method, apparently. Yes, you can read that in his book. Uh, overnight, he invented the vaccine. Yeah, that's funny as hell, but the Mokabi um, uh, vaccines where they had the enhancers, so they didn't have uh, so much uh, antigen dose and could make a lot of these injections, so they had it patented. And Mokot, uh, that vaccine that was in there without any vaccine, that made it so expensive. That made it so expensive. And then the Asian countries at the uh, World Health uh, Assembly who said that you don't can't get any, any patents. I was involved in these negotiations and they knew exactly that the American companies, and they were U.S. Americans who were in favor of uh, patent protection. Uh, they know that they were all over the world looking for, for viruses and include them in there so that they can then sell it as uh, a vaccine and then sell it, of course, uh, and have a patent on it. Well, I think it sounds very funny if you recall it three years of this horrible situation. We've uh, heard what's going on and uh, the initial reports Mr. Drosten at the same at the time said, "Well, it's a mild virus." And on a stroke, probably somebody told him to turn the story and start the panic, and everybody fell for it. Yeah, and the mask is good for nothing. Well, we'll have another talk on that. Yeah, but I think it's important to review this. Where you tend to forget that uh, in the beginning it was all seen as a kind of flu, communicated that way as well, and uh, there was no uh, asymptomatic patient. The index patients weren't. And if left about uh, Mr. Lauterbach yesterday, tweeted uh, uh, the only word which was missing was uh, antisocial. So the anti, the uh, non-asymptomatic uh, sick doctor who, <clears throat> if I look at my clinical co uh, uh, colleagues, they had to go work to work with severe flu, fever, uh, uh, cough. Uh, they had to go to the surgery theater 
nobody cared for it and now they say the doctor could be uh, infectious without symptoms <coughs> these are the gigolos of the new world order yes well that was the beginning uh, you may share the uh, presentation everybody can look up that paper uh, if they want to I think for historical reviews it may be interesting Okay, we put that into when we write our autobiographies. Well, not oh. yet. Others could do that. <laughs> well, you'd have nice stories to tell. Well, with that uh, Farine uh, block, um, who found it where and first and what were substrates that they found them in, I would like to know that more in more detail. I'm not fully clear on that, whether it's really that gain of functions that were spread over the world or whether they were only found in certain laboratories. Um, it's not very plausible to me that they spread the way they uh, the way it was planned. Well, the original virus was, was gone very quickly. Uh, you know, the, the one that it had inside, uh, it wasn't as stable as, as they think because so much has been um, worked on them. But the important aspect is that this sequence and a lot of other bad stuff is in there has exactly the basis for the vaccines. So in other words, the virus, the original virus was was gone very, very quickly. But the dangerous information that was in it, that was then used uh, to the fullest with the injections. It's a bioweapon. And this bioweapon was spread. As it doesn't spread by itself, you have to inject it. Yeah, it's much more effective. Uh, the coronavirus, uh, respiratory viruses, so in the immune system, you only, uh, you know, they are actually caught by your mucus. Well, our immune system would have said, crap that uh, glue point. Yeah, you're right. So. You have to say that. Uh, uh, you can say whatever you want, but because of the cross reactivity for the spike, uh, the envelope proteins, our immune system knows it quite well. And they thought, okay, well, we'll do it in some other way so that people need a vaccine. And that's uh, uh, turned out to be a, a cold. And those who have a bad immune system, you know, they they were caught hard. And of course, you can die of it. Uh, that's true. Not only with these, from others as well. Nobody looked at the compound of viruses. Everything is being published in Wuhan. The people with uh, the worst one, you know, they had influenza type two. So the bad um, study, the, the, the bad cases uh, from Wuhan either had influenza type A or B. Well, that corresponds to the statistical monitoring. And the ones uh, with the bad stories were the ones with the influenza type 2. So, so the bad guy was influenza type B, and the well, coronaviruses 
That was also included and was then seen to be the bad one. I think it's an interesting thought that <laughs> this Wuhan virus um, is only found in the sequencing in certain laboratories. I, may, I remember darkly that Drosten sent his tests for verification to the Hong Kong La Roche lab. So maybe it didn't take place. And in reality, it was just the argument that to be used in the vaccines, just as an idea. Well, just imagine, just imagine, people came up with something really, really nice and something really dangerous. The most dangerous weapon there is, like to do with other weapons, faster rockets, uh, more range, more explosivity. So they did this biologically. That's great. You get a lot of money for that from the Department of Defense um, if you're doing it right. So they did a good job, I think. But like with other weapons, often they cannot be used because if people find out what is being happening, uh, then there are protests. Just imagine the nuclear bombs are being used one day. Well, nobody, um, no politician could be in favor of it anymore. You know, the same with the uh, dangerous viruses. If they really were so bad that they could kill people en masse, well, that simply doesn't work, because somebody who's dead will not infect anybody else. Well, actually, there are these controllable, highly dangerous viruses and you can't control them that's the effective part of the injections you can control them a virus doesn't care whether the person who's infected um, whether he should be infected or not you know and if i kill these people with my syringe then i can actually make money you know uh, you know if it were just free i wouldn't get any money out of it uh, so i have a patent and then it's just spreading no that's not good i wouldn't like that because i want to make money it'd be stupid if they did that so that's why they chose the way with the syringes <coughs> yes well uh viruses and the problem is um, reproductive microorganisms are only controllable to a limited extent and that makes them very unsmart to release them into nature. But there are people who don't see this and think they can control it and that's the risky part of the business. May I also add they want to earn much money. Uh, it's not all that much. Can, can, can we get my computer onto the screen? Is that possible? There it is. <coughs> it's beautiful. What's that? It's pretty, but it's not for me. Probably that's why it's so good, but maybe... First of all, thank you very much. That was very, very interesting, exciting. It's always good when you find out what people have been up to. And I have another candidate who smiles very nicely, but also made sure that she made a lot of money. That's Professor Zanders Chisek. You may know of her. Uh, she, uh, she is a virologist at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. Not quite as famous, but also quite exposed because 
she, she is basically the female pendant to Professor well, Drosten. She has this podcast together with him. Well, that's right, that's right. They were in this podcast together. So I have two press releases from Goethe University of Frankfurt because I went, that was my uh, university back then. Now it's uh, an endowment university, so it's actually uh, dependent on external funding. Maybe I just read it to you because I would have loved to have shown you a picture of her. But on the 18th of March, so, sorry, on the 16th of March 2020, just before lockdown, um, she, from the Johanna Quant Foundation, received 250,000 euros within 24 hours after she asked for it. <laughs> That's pretty fast. <laughs> so the Goethe University of Frankfurt asked for it, so it seems to be uh, a dependable source. And Mrs. Chizik, uh, and I, I made a mistake there, I thought that she was the one who had actually um, looked at this uh, lady from Wuhan, but she was the one who, who, who then examined the Germans uh, who had lived in Wuhan. With her team, she examined these people. And then this is a little bit of a contradiction of uh, what we just heard. She also came to the conclusion, I'm just going to quote, her discovery, her discovery that uh, symptom-free patients can transmit the virus gave the uh, scientific foundation for an effective uh, pandemic, uh, pandemic management. And in October 21, you, uh, you need to share your screen. Well, I, I think they're all they're all in the same pot, <clears throat> and uh, in that way they all got the same tests and so on. Yeah, she found her patients and saved Germany. Well, I just wanted to mention her by name because it's important that the the ladies played their role as well um, for reasons of equality. And uh, the Institute got a lot of money for that, the 250,000 from the Quant Foundation. And as far as I know, there is a certain context here that Professor Drosten's uh, professorship, I think he's got two professorships, is funded by Quant Foundation as well. So there are cross-references here, whatever they manifest in. Well, <coughs> If you want to change the world, and in these days, you know, we are in a science-based economic region like Europe, and we have science-based, knowledge-based governments who do only smart decisions and uh, then make the decisions difficult to understand for others. Well, they are, of course, dependent on scientists and whatever scientists say, well, nobody knows more than scientists, isn't it like that? So, and you know, uh, and if the, you want them to say what you want to hear, well, then you have to then you have to finance the universities. 
It's the cheapest way to conquer the world. How much does a professor earn? It's nothing. Peanuts. So they they simply offer him three times that much, and then they can buy the entire university and get all the scientific proof that they need. And if the times say, oh yes, I can do my research, that's very nice. Well, what I found out nobody's interested in, then I have to produce other type of results. So this publication bias, it's all been looked at for 20 years now, it's been known that no matter who is the sponsor, well, that's how you get your findings. I mean, science is corrupt. Research is corrupt. You cannot depend on research. You can only depend on the fact that the knowledge that the universities provide to us is biased. It is biased by those who paid for the research. But the problem is that science is completely <laughs> underfunded and it's measured in the third party means. So, especially in the medical area and the university research nearly is nearly fully funded by third party, and that's pharma companies. Yeah, or some technical advisors or whatever, yeah, that's right. Yes, medicine, technology, and so on. There's virtually no public funding, and if you want to do research or laboratory research, things cost that, cost money, and it's not about the salary, it's the so-called consumables, and that's the problem, that's the problem. <coughs> we have the same when it comes to climate research, environmental research, or when it comes to the assessment of products. You always have research financing, and it's those people who are interested in results, they, they provide the funding, and if you don't want to live in a society where uh, research is basically only market research, because that's what it boils down to, because if you want to know what really could be dangerous, what could be good for us, if um, we want to know how we can live well together, everybody, then we must make sure that research is transparent, that we can pay, we can pay for it, and that uh, this research is to our benefit, and that we can control that this is being done transparent with clean methods. And there should not be any patents on drugs. I mean, first of all, uh, when you want to publish, then uh, uh, you know, the, that's when they're interested in, in, in the patent. But uh, patents in medicine, in drugs, that is a catastrophe, just like the you know, sponsoring funds. But there's nothing new to that. Everybody knows that. Well, I didn't talk about anything new. I just wanted to illustrate this with an example uh, because um, that lady is quite dear to my heart and I have my own fight with the Goethe Institute uh, University so nothing really new but it's important to uh, call out the names I don't know how and how far how Chizek, Ms. Chizek is hearing it but we have to make clear to them that we have them on the screen and saying science is corrupt that's okay but it's too general and it's helpful if we can do that, uh, illustrate that um, 
with concrete cases and names, like the Quant Foundation. I don't know what role it plays, but it pops up again and again. And uh, maybe one final thing, it's not so important. However, I noted um, after all this corona thing started, because Ms. Cameron just said uh, this uh, vaccination adds 2019, I noted in 2019 there was a big uh, advertising campaign, Germany is searching the vaccine passport. I uh, lost mine uh, at the time, and uh, so that was quite clearly a subtle um, set up for this uh, whole thing, otherwise it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, once you get it injected uh, subcutaneously, then you don't need to look for it anymore. Yeah, you're right, because... I didn't find mine until today. Yeah, you can do it subcutaneously, you know. They inject it under your skin, like a chip. It's a chip. Yeah, like, like your dog, like your dog. Yeah, all, all animals have this, but this hasn't really got to do with the vaccination status. It's uh, finding it if they run away. Yeah, but you can also program the, 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 the vaccination status. You can put that into the chip. You can put all kinds of information in there. Well, I think we have come to the end of the session. I'm always fascinated about the new aspects that emerge. And I was very impressed uh, by Jennifer Say today because uh, she resisted the $1 million temptation and uh, opted for truth and speaking out with the information. I think that's very impressive. And it's important that we keep the talk up. And as she said, the drop to fill the bottle may drop any time. And in that sense, we are still depending on your support. We are a trustee foundation now, and we are beneficial. We can issue receipts for donations now, and we'd be happy to get your support um, so that we don't have to stop. We have a final clip of the Kaufmann Institute for Coincident. You have it in German with the German clinics too? Well, we have it with subtitles and it'll be It'll be translated simultaneously, but I think with Kaufman Institute, not with the German clinics. We can do that afterwards. Well, I can only say, think of the big five, six German clinic groups, then this will be right. Well, we're looking forward to that clip and we're looking forward to a wonderful Friday night and um, a nice weekend and see you again next week. Bye bye. Are you or a loved one suffering from a medical coincidence? You want proper medical care, but you don't want people sniffing around asking a whole bunch of questions about what might be causing your problem. At the Kaufman Institute for Coincidence, we won't look into the cause of your heart or other problem, we'll just fix it. That's right, we promise to only look at your symptoms. We won't get all curious looking for causes because that could get your employer or your doctor into some legal hot water. And nobody wants that. 
At Kaufman, we understand that coincidence is now the leading cause of death. Hey, we've got another coincidence over here. If we want to operate at the speed of science, there's no time for looking for causes. No pesky questions about drugs or vaccines you may have been given. At Kaufman, we specialize in the effects and leave the causes to the conspiracy theorists. And let's be honest, we know the cause anyway. It was a coincidence, right? For each new patient, Kaufman's talented team of doctors strap on their blinders and look directly at the problem area, usually the heart, just like the CDC recommends. Our main campus now treats myocarditis, blood clots, heart arrhythmia, stroke, heart attack, magnetic skin, difficulty breathing, full body blisters and burning, convulsions, kidney failure, memory loss, cancer, sudden death, and much, much more. Give your coincidence the attention it deserves, but not the wrong kind of attention, at Kaufman. Schedule your appointment today at KaufmanCoincidence.com and receive a doctor's note with a real science-y sounding explanation to provide to your anti-vax friends, proving to them it was definitely not the vaccine that caused your coincidence. Kaufman, because coincidences happen pretty much all the time. Official medical coincidence partner of the NFL.